the ever-present pursuit of entertainment, education, and some adjective to be named later. The Homestar Army proudly presents Trek West 5, a conglomerate podcast of science fiction, politics, humor, and pretty much whatever else we want to talk about. Trek West 5 is brought to you in part by RocketWebDesign.com, custom web design at template website prices. Designs by Dee.blogspot.com, your online home for all your digital scrapbooking needs. Need a home along the Wasatch Front? Contact Lisa DeBagere with Kirkham & Friends Real Estate. No one will work harder for your home. And thehomestarmy.com, blogging to the world since 2004. Your hosts for Trek West 5 are Joey and Peter. Good evening and welcome to Podcast 113. I am Peter. And I am Joey. And uh, we are uh, a lot happier than we should be tonight. <laughs> Why should we be more unhappy? I don't know. Felt like it needed to... Uh, we need to somber a little bit. Maybe. We haven't tried being sober about anything <laughs> in quite some time. I think we tried. <laughs> I don't think it's fair to say we didn't try. <laughs> yeah, well, I yes, I guess historically we have tried. But when was the last time we tried? I don't know. Yeah, well, um... <laughs> It's uh, podcasting time. Welcome yeah. back, Joey. Uh, did you have a nice week? It was okay. Yeah. Yeah. You? Uh, it was. It seemed uh, fine to me. I guess. My kids both started school this week, so that was kind of an adventure. My uh, my six year old daughter's already been to the principal's office. I guess she decided on the first day of school, rather than go back to class, she would just wander the halls of the school and see what else was going on. Oh my gosh. <laughs> She went on a walkabout. She did. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there goes the sober mood. Um, boy, that's... Uh, you shouldn't let her watch those episodes, Joey. I, I encouraged that behavior, just, so, just for the record. <laughs> yeah, I still think that that's wrong. Joey told me about it over uh, dinner, and uh, I'm like, okay, so did, did you, like, you know, scold her for it? You're like, no. I gave her a high five. Yeah, I just... <laughs> I said, I used to like to do stuff like that, too. Good for you, kid. Yeah. Um, about that high school diploma. <laughs> Could I see that again? Oh, no? As soon as I get one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that was uh, that was a low blow. Low blow. Sorry about that. Keep it above the belt. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, anything we need to uh, discuss to begin with? No. Nope. Okay, thank goodness. Uh, we'll move on to Facebook Find of the Week. Okay. Uh, I think the clear winner this week is Listener Fishhead with Beaker's Ode to Joy. Oh, the Ode to Joy. Uh, out of the four videos that he posted there, <laughs> I just I laughed and laughed at that Beaker one. When he starts vibrating because he's hitting the note so high. <laughs> Hilarious stuff. I actually hadn't ever seen those or even heard of them before. So Neither had I. Uh, uh, Dean and I, uh, Fishhead... Uh, worked together, and he was uh, telling me about... No, I had posted the Muppets and the OK, OK Go. Go. Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's really good. And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've got a few of those things that uh, I've got that are really funny. And uh, I, was, I was, you know, thinking I might post them, but I don't know. We'll see. I'm like, well, you do want to win Facebook Find of the Week, don't you? Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, uh, congratulations to, uh, to him. Okay. Uh, this is his second time winning? 
Yeah, I think it is. Second time winning. I'll have okay. to check the outbound email before I <laughs> <laughs> operate on that assumption. But <laughs> um, Okay, we... Um, uh, oh, yeah, Joey's Culture Corner. Okay. The, Culturize us. Joey's Culture Corner this week is a book called The Phantom Tollbooth. This is a book about... Is it The Phantom Tollbooth or is it... The Phantom Tollbooth. It's the Phantom Tollbooth. <laughs> okay. What have you heard the uh, the audio version of it? Yes. Maybe it's oh. not spooky at all. Dang it! It's it's a book of puns, basically. Oh, go um, on. So, th- this kid who's bored with life gets a present of a of a little toy tollbooth, and he has a toy electric car that he can get in and drive and so he drives up to this toll booth like it's a real toll booth and he puts his money in and it opens up and as soon as he passes through the toll booth he ends up in a magical land called the kingdom of wisdom and here he learns a whole lot of things about idiomatic english speech (laughs) through the use of puns so for example he meets an insect that's called a humbug and it hums and it does kind of the way it talks it kind of makes a humming noise um he has to rescue the princess's rhyme and reason. <laughs> he goes to Dictionopolis, which is a city where they grow all the letters that are used in words. And you have to go buy letters and buy words at the Dictionopolis market if you want to use use words. <laughs> Fascinating. Hilarious stuff. There's actually a uh, an animated movie that was made of it as well that you can go get that is I also find entertaining but this is this is the book that I'm reading with my six-year-old daughter right now oh I was gonna say uh, this sounds like something that I would be interested in reading but now that you mention it's for you know your well, six-year-old I read it well I think when I was in third grade but I decided to read it with her and then take the time at each new pun that's introduced to explain okay here's what they're talking about here's the actual idiomatic expression, you know, rhyme and reason or humbug or, you know, that they're actually going for. Here's what it really means. Now let's, let's see, you know, I say, let's watch for how that comes out in the story. How did they tie it in and make it so that you actually learn about that thing? So, you know, just using it as kind of a learning experience to help my daughter learn that there's more than just sitting down and turning the pages. I mean, she reads the book. But after you close, after she closes the book, you know, if you ask her, well, you know, what did you learn from that book? It's, oh, I don't know. It was entertaining, kind of. There thing. was no retention, right? And uh, so I wanted to give her kind of a deeper one and work with her on it, so that they build that skill of retention. That's good. Um, I, I, you bring up the the difficult na- nature of the English language. Um, I was reading on uh, Patrick Rothfuss. Uh, Rothfuss's <laughs> blog, the author of uh, that book, um, and someone emailed in and said, "Hey, you know, I, I know the latest book came out. When are you going to get it published into uh, Spanish, or when are you going to get it published into German you know, or whatever? This, you know, whatever language." And he replied with saying. Uh, look, I, I don't think you people realize just how difficult the translation process is. And then he linked back to something that he put up from his first book that was posted. Gotcha. And uh, he, I guess, he gave a couple of really, really good examples about how just um, 
Oh, jeez. I, I wish I could remember quite what he had done. But anyway, it, it was something that we could read in like three or four different ways. And so trying to get across what he describes as um, not through words describes, you know, an action that one of the characters did. It could have different meaning depending on what person is looking at that gotcha. particular yeah. act. And it was just fascinating for him as he shared just a brief little thing with one of his translators as they said, Hey, I noticed this. Did you really mean to say this? Is this what you're trying to get across? And he's like, no, 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 no. Here's what I mean. It has this, like, I think three paragraphs of explanation about it. And uh, I, I was just fascinated because, yeah, yeah, I get, you know, translation's tough because you, you have to have someone who knows both languages and the patience to translate the words. It's not just translating the words. You have to get across the meaning. Yeah. Otherwise, if you go with a straight translation of that specific word, you lose what it was truly intended through the original script. And I was like, holy crap. Man, I'm, that would be so difficult. The thing that blows me away is when you translate something... Uh, an example is there's a song called Por Marte, or For Your Love, that's by... Uh, I don't think it's Julio Iglesias. Iglesias. I think it's is Enrique. it uh, U2? No. I think it's Enrique Iglesias, I believe, is who sings it. Because U2 did some Spanish songs. That, uh, that Uno, Dos, Tres, Catorce... <laughs> Which I found confusing, because yeah. that's not how the numbers go. Okay. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> You're not uh, as funny as you think you are. <laughs> oh, I enjoyed it. Anyway, so the song in both English and Spanish rhymes and has the the same rough meaning. That is amazing to me, the ability to actually translate from Spanish to English. Even though like the sentence structure is almost completely backwards, he still was able to manage to come out with rhyming words... And tell basically the same kind of story. Um, anyway, but yeah, you're right. It, it It's just incredible the complexity of language, especially going from one to another. Yeah. Yeah. So is she enjoying, your daughter, is yes. she enjoying this? I, I don't know how much of it is I'm enjoying it because dad's spending time with me and I laugh because dad laughed. I, I have... I. Have trouble reading her that way, but uh, I, should, I choose to believe that's that she's weird. Just she's a, a you know a ditzy-headed uh, six-year-old girl. That's weird. I would have thought she would have picked up on it right away. I, I I choose to believe that she's enjoying the process. <laughs> I give this book a thumb up. I read it like I said. I think I was in third or maybe fourth grade when I read it, and the way it plays with language has very much instructed my sense of humor over the years. You know, this ability to play with language and to... Yeah, you and I have a ton of fun (laughs) when someone says a specific word and we take it in the different direction that it was not intended (laughs) at all. Uh, Much to your wife's chagrin, I know. Uh, You know, I would be interested to read that book when you're done. So I would be the second person who has ever read one of the books you've recommended. There you go. So when you get done with that, bring it on by because I'd be happy to read that. Um, okay, so let's move on to episodes then. We will be covering episodes 17 through 20 of Babylon 5, season 3. And we'll start with episode 17, War Without End, Part 2. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sinclair is Valen. Sheridan and Dylan finally share a kiss. Unfortunately, it's way in the future. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Okay, good episode. Good good closing part to the first one. Which, I think I enjoy the first one a lot better than I enjoy the second one. Really? I'm not sure if you agree with that or not. I don't think so. I think I enjoy the second one better. Mm, Interesting. The, The first one is all set up and the second one's the payoff. Yeah, I enjoyed the setup tremendously. Um, okay, so we are 17 years in the future. Which, by the way, the number 17 seemed to play heavily this week. <laughs> and we're covering episode 17. 17 years in the future and gray 17. Yeah. So I guess it's just mentioned three times. Um, and Delenn and Sheridan apparently have a son. Yes. Which means they get together... So, cat's out of the bag on that one. <laughs> I guess we don't need to keep tiptoeing around that. Are they going to get together? Are they? Well, yeah, long enough to make a son. <laughs> uh, I'd be interested to know what that kid looked like. Yeah, we, we'll never see him in the series. You, you okay over there? Sorry, we have a fly who is annoying us around <laughs> uh, the, the recording tonight. So, if you, well, you won't see any of it. So you might hear wild gesticulations. <laughs> um, let's see here. Um, they won the war, but apparently it comes at a terrible, terrible price Yeah, that uh, we're just not aware of. I mean, so apparently the shadow get defeated, but something really, really horrible happens, but it's still better than what the shadow would have done to them, so it's preferable. Yeah. So they're willing to live with it. Um, Wando blames Sheridan for what happened on Centauri Prime. I thought that was really interesting because does he though? I think he does. I, I think that does he? Has he? To, he has this keeper on his shoulder, and I think he has to have genuine emotion, or it can tell that he's faking. So he really had to feel that emotion as he's standing there ranting about. I don't know. I didn't read it that way. Okay. I went a little different. I, uh, as you tried to hint at in our last podcast, and I tried to shut you up. Uh, yeah, Londo was faking, or he was putting on an act to help keep this parasite thing. Yeah, the keeper. Uh, is that what they are? Yeah. We'll we'll come to find out later. Well, on. he said it. He said we all have our keepers, and then he leans forward, and you see the thing sucked onto his neck. Um, so. I choose to think that he is just that good of a liar. Okay. And I think he is that good of a liar. I I won't deny that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, he says, we do not wish to wake it. After he gets himself, like, sufficiently drunk to the point that it lulls the keeper into... uh, A drunken stupor. Yeah, comatose, it can't act, essentially. And he finally has some freedom of his own. And so he lets Delenn and uh, Sheridan go get away. Yeah. I, I really like the way he phrases it. He says, I've had considerable to drink. I, I love that sentence, uh-huh. the way it sounds. Uh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I thought he gave a very good performance, um, uh, you know, with the, you know, the whole... Yeah, he gave the good performance earlier when he satisfied the Keeper. Yeah. And he also gave a very good performance, uh, Peter Jurassic, playing a drunk person. I, I thought he did a good job there. 
Um, Londo lets them go because he wants them to help free his people. Says, I'm going to let you go because you're my last hope. Yeah. There is nobody else who can do this. Free my people from this. We don't know what it is that they're in bondage to. Assuming it, I assume it has something to do with the keepers in some regard. Uh, but it, it has to do with who put the keeper there. Does it? Yes. Does it? Yes. Oh, all right. <laughs> Thanks for the bell. Um, and then Jakar comes in. And they act out Londo's death wish. Yes. Dream. Prophecy. A little different than what we saw in the dream, but it doesn't really matter. Did None you notice Jakar? Has an eye patch? Has an eye patch. Yes, pirate Jakar. <laughs> Old, creepy pirate Jakar. <laughs> they did a really good job of aging that that facial uh, makeup that Andreas has to wear. Yeah. Yeah, I, I especially enjoyed the liver spots on uh, uh, Londo as well. Um... Okay, so Delenn and Sheridan are having this conversation, and Delenn is, uh, she realizes, because Sheridan basically says, I have no idea what's going on right now. We're together? We have a son? What's going on? (laughs) And she says, oh my gosh, you told me this all these years ago, and I just never believed you. Why in the world she didn't believe him? I don't think she meant, I thought you were lying to me. I think she meant, it never really sunk in. Not what she said. I think. I think it's it's a colloquial use of the phrase. I don't believe that. <laughs> it's just a bad translation from, from Mimbari to English. <laughs> you know, well, we've already talked about how that's really tough. So I have to. I have to go with that. You're right. You know, people use phrases all the time. Did not mean what they really mean. And I don't think she means I doubted you. I think she means I didn't really conceptualize it all the way. Uh, at any rate, she finally says, Okay, I understand what's going on now. John, you cannot go to Zahadum. Yeah. Do not go to Zahadum. And he's still a little puzzled by all of this. Um, should we have rung the bell there at some point? No, we don't have to. I'm just wondering <laughs> if we should have. Yeah, probably. Seems. I, I think I think we've rung the bell enough on the phrase about going to Zahadum. Okay. I think it's probably clear at this point. So somehow in Sheridan's past and future, he's going to go to Zahadum, and Delenn thinks it's a really bad idea. Yeah, so it's future Sheridan's past, present Sheridan's future. <laughs> <laughs> I did that just for you. <laughs> um, so they apparently get away, or he fades away at that point is that when he fades away yeah and the real sheridan i guess comes back i don't know i guess <laughs> um, that, that aspect of of Straczynski's version of time travel makes no sense <laughs> also the doubled up time stabilizer makes no sense yeah, we're gonna get there yeah, all right because <laughs> i have some problems with this episode and i think it's kind of why i don't enjoy this episode so much because honestly this is really incredibly confusing okay. but i we'll, we'll get there in a sec um, so, Londo kills Veer. The, the two of them... Uh, Jakar. Or, sorry, Jakar kills Londo. Londo or and he Londo starts to choke him. The, the thing wakes up, and so then Londo goes at his throat as well. And so it looks as though, you know, Jakar is, has just been coming to kill him. Right. He kills him. I'm assuming Londo kills Jakar as well, because 
Jakar's just seemingly laying there lifeless. They're dead, yeah. So they are dead. Yeah, they are That's, dead. We've seen the death of Londo and Jakar. and Jakar. Then who comes around the chair <laughs> but our little friend Veer. One of you will be Emperor after the other one is dead. And then he picks up, and he's looking extremely well, Yeah. by the way. Um, and then he picks up the Emperor's necklace? I guess, yeah. Um, okay, so... He's essentially going to become emperor next. That's so right. yep. now we know. All right. Uh, I guess that's one portion of this. Sorry, I'm just going through my notes. All right. Two time stabilizers. Everything is happening just like it did before. Yes. So it didn't quite happen just like it did before. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> or. The first time we saw Babylon 4, and they went back and helped take all of the people off the station, we have someone's hand coming up and caressing... Sinclair's shoulder? Cheek. Okay, it could have been cheek. I'm pretty sure it's cheek, because it looked to me like, okay, that's not necessarily a lover's embrace, but that certainly is a... I'm very close with you, and I'm going to stroke your cheek. I've stroked many cheeks in my day, and none of them were accepted. <laughs> they were all inappropriate. It was okay when you stroked my cheek. <laughs> that never happened. That never happened. Um, okay, so I had a problem with that, because that's not really how it happened. Yeah, that's right. That's true. That one is... There's a, there's a reason for that. Why? Are you going to explain it? Yes, right here. We had a wardrobe glitch, when we came, which came back to haunt us during the shooting. We put Delenn in a green tunic for this episode, but the arm seen reaching into the frame to put her hand on Sinclair at the end of the previous episode was wearing a different color sleeve, and they wouldn't match. So we decided to have Mira not reach into the frame in this story because it would be easier to explain that than a mismatch of the original footage, which thus far we've been able to use without incident. Okay, yeah, I guess that's sort of an explanation. Just not a, a very glitch. Not a very good one, no. but <laughs> it's an explanation. I, I'll, I guess I'll let go of that. Um, okay, Sinclair is getting older, because apparently time is acting on him differently because he's been here before. The tachyon particles are catching up to him. Yeah, okay. I guess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Don't worry about it too much. <laughs> uh, that's, that's another one that I'm like, mm, that's weird. But I, they use it as a way of explaining he can't go back. That's right. Which will become important later on. Um, now, as far as I'm concerned, Zathras steals the show. Absolutely. For this episode. Yeah. He is the highlight of this episode. <laughs> and he... All of the things that he does is just really phenomenal for the character of Zathras. As I'm just thinking, he is all over the place and just like, <laughs> he's like Johnny on the spot. Right? right when they need him to be there, he's there, he's fixed the thing. Oh no, now he's getting captured and he's going in to be interrogated and oh, 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 you are not the one. <laughs> not the not the one. I like when uh, he, he builds the space suit, space suit time stabilizer device and Marcus says he's quite mad, you know. And then Sinclair <laughs> or Sheridan comes into the suit and 
And Zathos is such a man. Yeah, they called him mad. They called me mad. And poor Zathos. Nobody ever believes him. <laughs> totally identify with that. Okay, so here's where I start to get a little confused, too. How did he get inside the suit? Did, was it something Zathras had done? He put the time stabilizer on the suit, and he Sheridan is drawn to that time stabilizer. Okay, so why did he put it on a suit, then? Because it needed a power source. Oh, I the see. The suit had a power source built into it. None of the other time stabilizers needed a power source. They have they had a power source, but his was damaged. Okay, so it was a time stabilizer and a power source together. And his the power source was damaged, which made the time stabilizer stop working. Right. When he hooked it up to the spacesuit, said use the power suit the power from the spacesuit, that pulled Sheridan back to that time stabilizer inside the suit. Right. But he still got pulled back out at a certain point. When the battery on the spacesuit died. Okay. As he's building it, Zathras says, you know, this isn't going to last very long. The battery on the spacesuit was not a super strong battery. And I think it had something to do with the fact that they're out there and they turn up the, the fusion reactor. Short, yeah. And they kind of short it out. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I can buy that. Okay. Now that I understand what actually happened. Because, brother, I was confused. <laughs> okay, so my next question. How did Sinclair get outside? What do you mean? Okay, so all of the um, past Sinclair is leaving with all of his ships. Yes. Oh, and he's trying to send a message to Garibaldi. And Sinclair is outside at the front of Babylon well, that's, 4. That's where they've been going out to go around into the fusion reactor. I have no idea where the fusion reactor even is. <laughs> it's, I assumed that it was like somewhere inside the ship. No, it's actually on the outside. That seems a really poor place to put a fusion no, it's reactor. it's actually a good place to put it because then you don't have to cool it. It just vents into the vacuum of space. <laughs> okay. That, that certainly does make sense. But... I I just don't understand how he got there. Well, I, I'm assuming he just went out the hole that they cut in the side of Babylon 4. Well, that's where the ship was. Well, the ship is there, and there's something between the White Star and Babylon 4, and I assume it's a permeous membrane that he can pass through somehow. <laughs> how can you say that with a straight face? <laughs> It makes perfect sense. <laughs> oh, that's such a made-up chunk right there. <laughs> okay. He passes through the semi-permeable membrane. <laughs> and he's got enough time to get up to the front of the station. How he got there? I don't know. Yeah. He, he jumped. Clearly, <laughs> clearly, the suits don't have enough battery power for something big. Well, they do have that backpack on, and I was wondering if that's supposed um, to be like an EVA. It could be. It could be. Because I couldn't think of any other purpose but that backpack, which looks like a school backpack spray-painted <laughs> <laughs> to go with the uniform. You're right, it did. I didn't even notice it at the time, but you're right. Uh, uh, okay. Next question. How did Delenn get in the suit? She took it off of Sheridan and put it on. So, 
Wait. <laughs> she sees Sheridan show up. She goes over. Takes it off of him while he's laying there passed out. Puts it on. Gives him her time stabilizer. And then gets yanked through time. The question I've always wanted to know now, is... When did we where did see- she go? We don't ever see that happen. No, it all happened off... We see her look over and see John appear. And she runs over to him. And then the next thing we know... This, there's still someone in a blue suit hopping around and Sheridan is laying there and he's like, I have no idea what happened to me here. We're, we were supposed to infer that Delenn sacrificed herself for Sheridan. Okay. Okay. Um, Alright. That would have been nice if we could have seen that a little easier or had it explained to us better they didn't they were trying to hide it from you it was one of those things where you're supposed to try be trying to guess who's in the blue suit yeah but after the fact i just didn't feel like i ever got an explanation about how all of that happened okay it it just would have been nice for her to to turn to sheridan and say oh what happened is you came back and i had i took your suit and so i finished that out for me I would have actually understood. When I got to the end of this episode, I was incredibly confused <laughs> over all okay. of these things that I've just brought up. I that that one I've never had any trouble with. That always made sense to me. So. Okay. Um okay. Uh let's see. I had a follow-up question to that which I can no longer The two spacesuits? Can we talk about that for a second? Uh sh- sure, I guess. In writing this episode, I knew the number one problem I would have to overcome was the question raised two years earlier in Babylon Squared. Who was in the blue spacesuit? I wrestled with this question for weeks leading up to the day I was to begin the actual writing. Then the answer hit me. I would use a magician's solution to the problem. Misdirection. If the problem was straightening out who was in the blue suit, then the solution was to introduce more blue suits. (laughs) The problem was that in Babylon Squared, the original blue suit was actually... An orange suit. We'd rented from a costume house and repainted a spacesuit that had actually been used in the movie 2001 A Space Odyssey. We'd rented it because trying to build a spacesuit that looked believable was and is very difficult. Unfortunately, as I learned shortly after writing Part 2 of War Without End, the rental company didn't have a second spacesuit. There was just the one. So we ended up having to hurriedly manufacture a second one for this episode. If you look closely, you will notice the difference in quality. Huh, well, no, I didn't notice. I'm pretty sure that Sheridan is wearing the hurriedly manufactured one. I, I, I have no... I don't even notice at all. Okay. Okay. How does Marcus know that there's something... That something is up? It's a good question. Uh, he just sort of seems like... Hey, wait a minute. He... he Miraculously... He has been paying attention to the time travel system and realized if it were programmable, then we wouldn't have had throughout the course of the episode to always have someone near the controls. I mean, he's just, he just reasoned it out from seeing, every, seeing Zathras trying to manipulate the device or the, the time travel system and said, yeah, I can see that someone's going to have to be here running this. Okay. Uh, so I just remembered my question uh, or my follow-up, which was, you mentioned we don't know where Delenn goes. Right. We saw her go someplace, clearly in the same quarters as Sheridan. Yep. But some we hear a woman's voice as the door opens. 
to his quarters. Oh, 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 you're talking about that. the fl- Her flash. Which is different than where she went when she was wearing the suit. Oh, okay. She had the flash as she was coming up out of I the... I assume that's what you were talking about. No, I'm saying she puts on the suit and then she disappears in the time stream. I'd like to know where she went. We never find out. It's never covered in, in any of the episodes, but I've always wondered. Oh. What did she get to go see? Oh, I see. Okay. No, what she sees in the time flash is, yes, she sees herself in John's bedroom as he's sleeping. I'm saying John, by the way, because I keep... I know I'm going to say Sinclair when I mean Sheridan. So <laughs> it's going to be Sinclair and John. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could go back to the box and the puppet. <laughs> anyway, she's looking at the the snow globe, and the door opens, and you hear a woman's voice greeting, mm-hmm. greeting her. And she drops the snow globe and it crashes on the ground and we'll find we'll find out what happened. Well that's foreshadowing? Yes. Hmm. Yeah it's definitely not something that happened in the past. <laughs> it's coming in the future. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay. Uh, do, you, so... do you really not remember who it is? No. You don't. Okay. No. Okay. Good. Huh. <laughs> uh, okay. So Sinclair, Delenn, and Sheridan are as explained by Zathras, are the one. Okay, now I can talk about what I wanted to talk about last week. <laughs> the, the term Entilza. Uh, last week we kind of hand-waved a little bit and said, yeah, it means it means Ranger 1. Okay, that's not true. Ranger 1 in Minbari is Enlashak Na. Okay? There was the first Ranger 1, who was Valen, and he was both Enlashak Na and Entilza. After Valen, None of the future Ranger Ones were Entilza until Sinclair. Sinclair was the first Ranger One in a thousand years to be declared Entilza. Entilza means the one who guides the future, or the one who creates the future. Why was he given that name? By prophecy. Because he gave it to himself. <laughs> so someone so he leaves a note saying Hey, in the future, somebody's going to show up by the name of Sinclair. I want you to call him this. Something more probably like there will be a non-Minbari who's head of the Rangers, and that will be Intilza. Hmm. I mean, prophecy is never as straightforward as <laughs> his name will be Jeffrey David Sinclair. <laughs> um, okay. Hey. So why didn't they all all the Mimbari just rally around this guy right away? Why are the warrior cast resisting? It's a good question. I don't they, they're Are we any answer ever? Their arrogance prevents it. Okay. I I believe that. Um Okay, let's see here. There was something else I was gonna ask you about that. The two time stabilizers? No. No, we've covered that. <laughs> Um, or we didn't did cover we? that. We didn't cover that. Okay, yeah. Feel I guess go ahead and let's cover that. There are two. Uh, there are two broken time stabilizers. When Sheridan went, got when Sheridan's time stabilizer got hit in War Without End Part One, it falls to the ground and he disappears. And Zathras goes over and picks it up and makes the comment, "Zathras can never have anything nice." I thought that was the power source. That was the whole. When you look at it. As, as Zathis is holding the pieces, 
it's the whole the power source and the time stabilizer together. See so how it has two pieces. It's kind of a a big ring and a little ring. I'll take your word for it. I have no so idea what it looks both like. Both of the pieces are there, and he's holding them, and he's like, "Ah, oh, Zathus can never have anything nice." And then when Sheridan bounces back in time, he drops something in the crowd, and it's his time stabilizer. It's absolutely an error in the script. Really? I just assumed that it was. No, I hear I can read it to you. Oh, I believe you. Okay. You don't need to read it. I, I just assumed from watching the episode, I just assumed that that was part of his thing that was falling off, and that was no. It, it's uh, he he talks in in the script book about how you know they filmed this episode and he wrote it, they filmed it, and in all all throughout it, it talked about Sheridan dropping the time stabilizer. Nobody caught it until the I night, know because it fell on the floor. The, <laughs> <nice>. Zing. <laughs> Uh, the night that they were taking the dailies or the the final episode over to the P10 Network broadcast people, he says, "I went home and I laid down in bed and I sat up and said, damn it!'" <laughs> <laughs> oh. It was at that point that he realized I doubled up the time stabilizers. There's two of them floating around now. Well, he is in two time periods, so why not? Or maybe it's someone else's Sheridan that came back, came back to us. Um, okay, so I remember a question. So Rangers have always been trained from the days of Valen? Uh, they, they had taken a break at some point, and there had not been Rangers for a while. We don't, we okay. don't ever get specifics on when they stopped and when they started back up. So when Sinclair gets assigned to Minbari... Then they start the Rangers back up at that point. Yes. When he shows up. Right. They, uh, Delenn goes to the Great Council and asks them to authorize restarting the Rangers under the control of the religious caste. And the Great Council agrees because they just think it's not going to matter. It's just not important. And Wait, did we ever, did we see that? No. It, it, it all happened off stage. Oh, okay. Because I can. That would make a lot more sense because Marcus goes on about how he was, you know, he had been wandering and how his brother had been killed by the shadow and he was uh, a member of the Rangers. Uh It just didn't make sense that all of a sudden Marcus, within the space of a year, a year manages to get to that level? That never made sense to me. The timing doesn't make a lot of sense. I agree. It It just seems like. The Rangers sure really should have been started like 20 years ago or something like that. And Sheridan shows up and they're like, we'll put this guy in charge. We <laughs> like him. And that would make much more sense than we restart the Rangers when Sheridan shows up. Yeah. Sorry, Sinclair. Sinclair shows up. I'm with you. It, it, the timing there, it just seems way too compressed. Yeah. Yeah. A lot happened. Especially, especially if we're supposed to believe that uh, Marcus is really such a uh, a badass as, as what he's portrayed. It, it may be an inconsistency because there is parts of the script where they refer to, you know, we restarted the the Rangers because Sinclair came along kind of thing. But it may have been, maybe it's maybe what they are trying to say is that first time they found Sinclair when they took him at the Battle that's, of the Line. That's when they did it, yeah. Maybe that's what they're trying to say. That, it's it's never really... That documented very well inside the script. So. Yeah. And does uh, Straczynski ever bother to explain? No. I, I, I don't know that anyone ever 
called him on it, you know, and said, wait, how did all this timing, you know, where's the timeline here? I don't think anybody's ever asked him because none of the books that I looked in, because that was the first, one of the first things I looked for when I got these books and the Asked and Answered books, because it's never made sense to me. Okay, good. I'm glad, I'm glad I wasn't the only one who's been struggling under that for a while. I hadn't ever brought it up because of like, uh, okay, I guess we're yeah. just supposed to believe it. <laughs> um, well, feel free to ask him next time you see him. Okay. Um, okay, so Sinclair, Delenn, and Sheridan are the one. The one in the past, the one in the future. The one in the present. The one in the present. Um, the beginning of the story, the middle of the story, <laughs> the end of the story that starts the next great story. I loved when he put it that way. That to me, there was there's such symmetry in that. Yeah, which means there's going to be something else to come yeah. along. It's We're not just over and done here. It's the next great age is going to be upon us. So, um, Sinclair is going to go back. He's taking Babylon 4 back. And Zathras is going to go with him. Yep. Um, good for Zathras. Yeah. Happy for him. Um, how did he get the Triluminary? She brought it with her. With Does her. she? Yeah. It, it, it's one of those things that is in the asked and answered. Uh, the, so here's the, here's the crazy thing, though. Valen gave the Triluminaries to the Minbari. Uh-huh. Delenn gives uh-huh. the Triluminaries to Sinclair. Uh-huh. Where did they come from? Uh-huh. <laughs> Is your head starting to hurt now? No, it's not starting to hurt. I'm enjoying the heck out oh, of it. Oh, no. It's a, it's a closed circle. You know, they they refer to Sher- Sinclair as the closed circle. It's a closed circle. There's no way it could have ever been created. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. Like Kosh, it just is. Yeah, I don't care for that. <laughs> um, so we come to find out Sinclair is Valen. Yep. And he two, goes he goes through the, the transforming process. And two Vorlon somehow meet with him before the Minbari show up because there's Valen standing there with a Vorlon on either side of him. Correct. So here's an interesting thing. Good. I was hoping you might have something to say on this because I was I want to know who those guys are. Is one of them Kosh? In Asked and Answered, uh, someone asked J. Michael Straczynski, how old is Kosh? And he responded this way. I'll put it to you this way. Kosh was old enough that he had first-hand familiarity with, with Valen. I choose to believe that huh. one of those two is Kosh. <laughs> and that's how Kosh knew Sinclair and how Kosh knew to be involved in Babylon 5 when it came around because he was there the first time. Um, okay, I guess. So, does he ever answer why the Vorlon show up on Babylon 4? It's because the Vorlon live outside the time stream. Everything is happening all the time for them. And Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they they actually perceive time differently than we do. And so, so they, they should knew. know what's coming. They do. That's that's why Kosh was so scared. When Sinclair is calling him on his crap and saying, get off your encounter suited butts and do something. Because Kosh knows We gotta cut that. That was a good explanation for me. Really good explanation for me. <laughs> right. I can't mention any of that. We can't. We can't cut it. Uh, we'll yeah, well, we had to cut something. <laughs> Joey got a little over eager. And I couldn't rein him in fast enough. I... 
So, uh, thanks for the explanation, Stuff Joey. happens. <laughs> <laughs> Keep watching. <laughs> um, okay, so... Uh, Valen goes back, and this is the last time we're ever going to see Valen and Sinclair again, yep. correct? Yes. We're done with them. Okay, I don't have anything more to say. Well, I think I have a few things here. Hold on. Um, when Delenn and Sheridan are together 17 years in the future, there's an interesting... Well, she, she makes this comment. There's nothing they can do to hurt me. They can't reach me. Something along those lines. There's nothing they can do to me. Is exactly what she says. This just seems like the same hubris that Londo faced in... Um, what was the episode? Just a few episodes ago. Anyway, where they killed Adira. And he says, ah, Go ahead, Mr. Morton. Do your worst. Everything bad that could ever happen to me has already happened. And of course, that's followed with... So, my, my argument is, look, if you love somebody or something, you're vulnerable. You can be gotten to. And anybody who believes otherwise is just stupid. There are There's always going to be someone who is willing to harm the person you love to get to you. Yes, I may not be able to get to you directly, but if I have to kill your loved ones to get to you, I'll do that. So, if it doesn't affect you, then does that mean you didn't really love them? I would argue yes, it means mm. you didn't really love them. Interesting. Or you're just that compartmentalized that uh, <laughs> you can box that little bit away and deep down inside you. But it did bother you at that point. Yes, you compartmentalized it, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with bottling up feelings. I, I promote <laughs> that any chance I get. <laughs> okay. Okay, Pete, do we have uh, listener comments? Yes, we'll start off with uh, Brainy Smurf. He says, War without an ending that we get to see. <laughs> First of all, Eye Patch Jakar is my favorite manifestation of our favorite Narn. And who's Londo's keeper? I keep thinking of the gatekeeper from Ghostbusters, <laughs> which would make Eye Patch Jakar the keymaster. <laughs> yeah, Jakar. You rock on with your funky, funky eye patch. Is Delenn related to Jeffrey Van Valen? Is that why their names rhyme? JMS has mentioned in a commentary that he originally had intended the puppet to have a love interest with Delenn. I want to know if JMS wrote this two-parter with respect to his original arc or if uh, he worked it into the story after the studio fired the puppet. He worked it in after... Michael O'Hare left the show for reasons that have not been disclosed. <laughs> Wait, why are you saying it like that? He's, he, he's implying that the studio fired Michael O'Hare. I think you're inferring something that he didn't necessarily... He, he explicitly stated that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Okay. <laughs> um, and J. Michael Szczynski has said repeatedly over the years, we didn't fire, Sher we didn't fire Michael O'Hare. It was an amicable parting... Agreed to on both sides. So. Okay, I've got a question about this, which is Sinclair becomes Valen. Yes. Seems like that was kind of the whole point from the original. Nope. Really? Really. So he was just going to be some Minbari soul? No. 
Well, he, he is he's himself. The original in the original version of the Babylon five five year arc, there was they never traveled into the past. They traveled into the future. And he was just one of those humans that was born with him in Bari's soul, and we never find Wait, out why. They traveled into the future? Who's they? Sinclair and Delin. Traveled into what future? For they, or from what past? They they traveled from the third year of the storyline to like 10 years in their own future and after the war had been lost. So the war is like being lost. They jump into the future and kind of restart the the resistance, if you will. That was the original arc. So they never go back in time? Nope. The Valen thing is never supposed to happen? Nope. Valen thing was never originally going to happen. Really? Because I consider that a much more interesting... Which, which is why I say, which is why I believe it when J. Michael Straczynski says, we didn't fire Michael O'Hare because he was a bad actor. I think it's clear that J. Michael Straczynski is okay with people being bad actors. <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, you know, no, no offense intended to anyone. You all, I'm sure, tried your best. But I think it's clear that, you know, if they're giving Straczynski the performance that he wants, he's happy with it. But he somewhere in the process of writing season one, realized, wait, what if I had this guy go back and become Valen? That'd be a much better story. And went to Michael O'Hare and said, look, this is what I want to do with your character, but it means getting you off the show now and bringing in someone else that can be the current hero. And I think Michael O'Hare said, yeah, okay, you know, if that's, that does sound like a good show, uh, you know, I'm, I'm betting there was probably some financial transaction involved. To you know, make Michael O'Hare whole for the years that he wouldn't be paid for, but it's why I've, I'm fully willing to believe that Michael O'Hare was not fired for being a bad actor. He was let go because they saw an, an opportunity to make this story that much stronger. Mm. And it wasn't necessarily that they saw, oh, hey, we could get Bruce Boxleitner. It definitely wasn't because they thought they were going to get uh, what was the guy's name? Peter the, York, the British guy. Yeah, M- Michael York. Michael York. Yeah. Hmm. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you, Spock. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't mind seeing some episodes about Valen. Yeah. Maybe that's the Babylon 5 that they the, should the do. The remake? Babylon 4, Valen's time. <laughs> I hope they don't call it that. <laughs> well, like they've come up with so much better names. Oh, come on. War Without End? That's good stuff. Walkabout. Uh, okay, let me go back to the email here. Well, now, uh, well, now, finally, our little wooden ambassador has become a real Minbari. I wonder if they will recycle the doll for other uses. <laughs> I don't know why he asked me to ring the bell, but he did. Uh, but I think, uh, but I think most striking here is the twin. Vorlon Angel greeting that Van Valen offers to those two boneheaded (laughs) dudes. For this week's Touched by a Vorlon. Vorlon watch. We flash back to Earth toys of the 1980s to find that the Vorlon must have totally inspired the popular Hasbro cuddly glow-in-the-dark fuzzy insects the Glow Friends. <laughs> yes, having two sisters yielded some inadvertent watchings of girly cartoons. My sisters had the butterfly, Vorlon, Glow Friend. 
See for yourselves in the link that I attached. Ah. Let me show you here, Joey. Yeah. I think my I think Aaron had one of those, actually, <laughs> growing up. I'm not kidding. I think Aaron really had that. <laughs> but it does kind of look like a Vorlon, doesn't it? <laughs> kind of a little bit. Uh, okay. Um, well, let's see here. Did he give a rating? Uh, yes. He says, Sci-Fi 10, uh, TV 8. Okay. Okay. Uh, listener Moneybags. He says, hey, guys. Joey, I wasn't aware you were a Phineas and Ferb fan. Oh, yeah. My daughter is three and a half, and I've been able to wean her off of Dora the Explorer onto Phineas and Ferb. Good for you. Thankfully. <laughs> I also do a passable Dr. Doofenshmirtz impression. In regards to my comment last week after about covering Lost, after Joey said he wasn't sure he was up for rewatching all of Lost, I realized an important fact. I don't want to rewatch Lost either. <laughs> uh, but how about a mini series of podcasts dedicated to Lost? Perhaps one per season. Mainly, I was also very dissatisfied with the ending to the show, and I would love to discuss it. Isn't that what the internet is for? <laughs> anyway, on to the episodes. So Sinclair is Valen. Interesting. So if Sinclair hadn't left, he would have played Sheridan's role. So he would have been the hero of the present Shadow War. No, future. And the Shadow War in the past. Which you've just explained now. Yeah. So clearly, uh, not only... It wasn't just me that was confused yeah, sure. there. Um, that would have been the call, but I'll still take the box. Thank you very much. So... Um, here's my question. Were the Minbari wrong when they said that Minbari souls were being born into human bodies? The only reason they thought this is because the Triluminary somehow detected that Sinclair was Valen, right? If that's so, was there any point in Delenn transfiguring? I'm not sure if we've covered this yet, so feel free to edit this out. But the reason she did it was to prevent more Mimbari souls from jumping ship, right? The whole being a bridge between our peoples thing was just a cover story. Of course, she still had to do it because Valen knew that it had already happened in the future. Did you follow that? Because yes. I'm confused. Yeah. So, the, the Mimbari sorry, sorry. souls... He finishes off with, anyway... This is where I started start getting confused about the prophecy. Still a great episode, though. Sci-fi, uh, sorry, TV seven, sci-fi eight. All right, okay. now go. Okay, Minbari souls are being born into human bodies. There's no question of that. The question is that they are trying to answer here is how did that start happening? And the only again, it comes back to the fact that. It involves the Triluminaries, and we don't know where the Triluminaries came from. They just are. They just appeared in the time stream. Wait, wait, wait. Is there more than one? There, well, yes, there are, but we only ever see one. Okay, but well, then always, that's okay. They always use it in the plural. Okay, then I, th I think it's okay that, he, you know, we've got one that's just in this weird loop. Because <laughs> there are others that were created at some point, and then one of them just managed to find themselves... Into the loop, some point. <laughs> okay. 
I'm glad that makes you more comfortable. I'm happy with that. As far as as my understanding of the episodes and the way it's all written is that the concept of a triluminary came from Valen. They didn't know what a triluminary was until Valen arrived with one, and they maybe made some more over the years. <laughs> and then Delenn gives Valen one of them, and he takes it back and reintroduces it to the time stream. Oh, I know. No, that would make me more confused. Never mind. Uh, apparently the Vorlon at some point were able to insert it into history. I'm okay with that. <laughs> I can live with that. Um, okay, I hope we answered your question there, uh, Moneybags. Aaron, he says, Wonderful television. Obviously a human would be the perfect Minbari. Um, Sci-Fi 9, TV 8. Okay. So those are all of the comments we've got for this week. Okay. Pete, science fiction. Uh, I feel very comfortable giving this an 8. Um, as I mentioned before, I was really lost in all of this. And I like the sci-fi elements and whatnot, the going back in time, the going forward in time. That's all good stuff. But it just felt really, really clunky the way that they tried to explain this through all of the various sci-fi uh, accoutrements that were along for the ride. It just it, really good, just not stellar. Um, I I do feel like this is stellar, and, and maybe it's because really enjoying time travel stories requires you to be able to comfortably hold a certain degree of cognitive dissonance. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> and you know what? No, this podcast is over. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> Well, because you can't hold cognitive dissonance? You just insulted me, sir. I demand satisfaction. Uh, that wasn't meant to be an insult, actually. I was, I, I was complimenting you. People, people usually treat someone who has cognitive dissonance as someone with a problem. But I've never had trouble living with a little bit of cognitive dissonance, so I can really enjoy time travel stories, and I say... Yeah, okay. There was no way for the Triluminary ever to be created. That's cool. That is awesome. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I'm giving it a 10. Uh, for television, I this is really, really, really frustratingly difficult to follow along. Uh, really, the best I can give this is a 5. Wow. And it's because of the the beginning stuff with Jakar, Londo, uh, Sheridan... And Zathras. The majority of it is Zathras. I really enjoy the uh, the uh, the offering that he gives as an actor there. I think he sold the show. Uh -huh. I loved him for it. Everything else was a stinker. And it would have got less if it hadn't been for Zathras. I'm with you. I do love Zathras. Uh, I, I give it a 7. Uh, I'm with you. Most of that a is... 7? Most of that is for Zathras. I actually probably would have gone higher. But I feel like they oh. oversell... The reveal of Valen. I, I, you know, especially the close-up on Marcus's face. <gasps> oh, I'm in Barry, not born of my bar. That was terrible. I would, I, if I had been the editor, I would have cut that shot and said, "Look, people are going to get it. You don't have to beat them over the head with it." Um, I, I just can't agree with you. I, I, I look at uh, various people and think, showing them this episode, they are going to be so bloody lost. Even if they have seen the first one, there is so much jumping around in here that isn't properly explained 
Judging from the fact that this guy over here was lost. <laughs> okay. Well, I, uh, I disagree. Okay, P5. P5 rating is 9.40. Moving on to our next episode, Walkabout. Dr. Sorry, Fra sorry, sorry. Walkabout. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Dr. Franklin is out looking for himself. If you should see him before he returns, please keep him here until he gets back. <laughs> oh, and there's a new Vorlon ambassador. By the way, his name is Olkesh. Oh, right. And telepaths can be can crash the living CPU in a shadow ship. Okay, I think that's everything. <laughs> Worst summary ever. <laughs> we aren't given this guy's name. We're not. And it was it, it's a mistake in, you know, J. Michael Straczynski said and asked and answered, yeah, I never got around to telling you what his name actually is, and it's Olkesh. Because he goes to great lengths not to tell people his name. Yes. He says... Call me Kosh. We oh, are yeah. Kosh. I, I get that. You know, I, I understand you're posing as Kosh. What should what what should we call you? Kosh. <laughs> um. So, okay. Can we talk about Olkesh real quick? Yeah. Okay. Because right. there, there's a, there's he talks in here and asks and answered about how he he wanted to get more into Kosh and Olkesh. And just never could find the right time to do it in the script. Is now the right time to do this? Now is the right time to do this. Are you sure? I think... No. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> what rudimentary knowledge I have of this series. <laughs> I still know better than you when not to reveal things. I just want everyone to know. <laughs> we'll get there, Joey. We'll get there. <laughs> um, okay, so Lita shows up. Yeah. And uh, she's like, what's going on? What happened to Kosh? <sighs> and she goes to the medical people. Looking for Dr. Franklin. Why doesn't she go to Sheridan? Yeah, that's a good question. She's got a good relationship with him. Yeah. She just kind of wanders around and, you know, trying to figure out what, what's happened with Kosh. And, you know, the story's supposed to be, oh, yeah, we don't know. It's top secret. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you skipped over one of my favorite parts of Babylon 5, though. Apparently, every sentient race in the galaxy has a version of Swedish meatballs. I didn't skip over anything. We haven't gotten to it yet. Oh. I just took my notes in the wrong order then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I was going to point out something really cool, which was walking on the station hull. Oh, okay. That's got to be pretty fun to do. <laughs> he, he, he actually wanted that to be the first thing Sheridan did when he got to Babylon 5. Decided against He's like, no, we need to give people a more you know, casual introduction to Sheridan. And move that to later in the series. And I love the way the Vorlon ship comes up and kind of stares him in the face. Yeah, meets him. <laughs> Good stuff. Yeah, it was pretty funny. Um, okay, so then we have the new Vorlon. Yep. That uh, we meet, who is supposed to be Kosh. Ulkesh. But we know him to be Ulkesh now. And then I have a note that uh, Jakar is having some meal with... Who? I can't remember who he was having the, the it's meal the, with. It's the captain of the... Oh, Dunhawk. right. Yeah. No. 
Not Gentok. That's what <laughs> I am. Word. <laughs> that's Klingon. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> Zetok? Was it the Zetok? I don't know. It's the it's the Narn heavy cruiser right. uh, that's out there. Um, and he says, yes, uh, Swedish meatballs. This is... Every sentient race in the galaxy has a version of Swedish meatballs. I like that idea. That kind of makes sense. You know, you grind up meat, ball it up, cook it. Why not? But with that, with that particular flavor, you know, of Swedish meatballs. Oh, I, I guess. I don't think I've ever actually had Swedish meatballs before. You have. You've had them at my house. Have I? Yep. When? Um, in my wife's stroganoff. I don't think I've had your wife's stroganoff. You have. I'm certain of this. Huh. Okay. But you can have it again next week. <laughs> no, not next week. Oh, that's right, yeah. We're not, by the way, we're not recording next week. Maybe. Maybe. Depending on uh, tickets to the, to the, the circus. circus. Do we love circuses so much. Yeah, I love the smell of, you know, animal feces. Huh. <laughs> it does sound nice. Um, okay. We are all Kosh. Can you shed any light on this? Is this just the Vorlon being obtuse? No. It's... Is he, does he have some sort of, you know, oh, Kosh was better than me, but, you know, I'm going to be a jerk now to cover it up. Okay, I knew this was going to come up, and, and I wrote it down because, while it makes sense in my head, I had a hard time verbalizing it. So hopefully, I don't know that this will help, but I have to read it verbatim because that's the only chance I have here of trying to help it make sense. <laughs> the new Vorlan ambassador, whose name is Olkesh, <laughs> so I guess it doesn't make that much sense I, for you written I, down. No, it makes sense. Now I'm wondering if I can say this. <laughs> I think I'm okay to say this because it doesn't come out in the episodes at any point. So here, I'm just going to read it here. The new Vorlan ambassador. His name is Olkesh and he and Kosh somewhat represent two political factions within the Vorlan. His assertion that we are all Kosh is a metaphor for the fact that Kosh was the oldest and most powerful Vorlon, and he was a form of racial patriarch. Yeah, I don't think. I think you can. Say, I think we can say I that. I, don't I think know. we're okay to say that. I don't know. <laughs> there, there's because that sort of is explained down the road a little bit. I think that explanation goes better down the I road. I think. I think that will enrich the down the road encounter when it happens. Oh, criminy. All right, well, if we keep that, uh, <laughs> I don't know what that just offered to you. But at any rate, let us move on to uh, the better part of the script. I mean, oh, wait. <laughs> Franklin doesn't know who he is. Yeah. Okay, let me, let me just, before we get into dismissing it, let me read from the J. Michael Straczynski book. <laughs> I'm glad we're already agreed on dismissing it. About how this all came about here. For reasons that will shortly become obvious, Franklin's walkabout, which is highlighted here was an extremely difficult arc for me to write. When the last part of it was finally published to the cast, Richard came to my office to thank me for giving him what he felt was the role of a lifetime. He couldn't stop talking about it and at one point asked, where do you get this stuff? So I told him what I am now, after much hesitation, going to tell you. I said, I came up with this story because it happened to me. In previous volumes, I indicated that while I was in college, I got involved with a cult that operated on the fringe of the Christian movement. 
which was very prevalent at that time in the early to mid-70s. Like similar groups, it owned and operated communes, one of which I lived in for quite some time. I turned over to that group all of my possessions, oh. my money, my life. Everything I had with one exception. I refused to entirely switch off my brain. When I began to perceive that an important leader in that organization was having affairs with a number of married women, I felt that I had to say something to the elders, who I thought surely could not have known what was going on, otherwise they would have dealt with it, would they not? But when I arranged for a meeting and told them what I knew, it quickly became apparent that they already knew about the situation, and that as far as they were concerned, the situation was not the problem. The problem was that I was aware of it and talking to them about it. That made me the problem, which had to be fixed because I refused to deny what I knew. They said I had to learn to submit to authority, but authority was never the issue. Truth was the issue. And I have a nasty tendency not to back down when it comes to the truth. Thus did we go to war. They took away my privileges, my allowance, all of five bucks per week, said that they would take away my right to go to college even part-time, took me off my post on the group's theater ministry, told me that I could no longer see the woman I had been seeing, the woman I thought I would one day marry. Other members of the group were told not to talk to me. They, were put, they put me on maintenance and cleanup duty, inclusive of cleaning out the toilets. All this in an effort to get me to submit to authority, meaning to state that I did not know what, in fact, I knew. I refused. Weeks passed. The discipline continued, and something had to go. Ultimately, it was me. The day I left, taking only the clothes on my back and a handful of Harlan Ellison books I'd managed to hide from their scrutiny, I left behind everything that mattered to me. Every friend in the world that I had, the woman I loved who could not bring herself to come with me, my faith, my optimism, absolutely everything. I left bitter and angry and seriously screwed up. On my own now, I began taking long walks through downtown San Diego, San Diego, late at night, walks that began to range farther and later each night. I walked through the seediest and most dangerous parts of town, down back alleys populated by addicts and hookers and drunks and drifters, seeing things during those midnight walks that could not later be unseen. Sometimes I'd start off in the early evening and walk straight through until dawn. I didn't talk to anyone during these, these incursions, I just walked. My grades went downhill, I wasn't writing, I stopped looking after myself. And when asked what I was doing, walking through these dangerous parts of town at all hours of the night, the only reply I could ever muster was, I'm looking for something. When asked what that something was, I didn't have an answer. Part of me always believed that I was looking for something worth living for, but another part believes that I was looking for something worth dying for, a notion that would end up later in the episodes of Babylon 5. I didn't know it at the time, had not yet heard the term, but I had gone on walkabout. One night, shortly after 10 p.m. during one of these walks, I turned down a small street and was jumped and beaten by six guys. There is no question that they would have kept on going until they killed me had someone else not heard the commotion and set up an alarm. By the time the ambulance arrived and picked me up, I was in pretty bad shape. Serious loss of blood, multiple lacerations, and a host of other injuries. As I studied the increasingly worried faces of the paramedics as they worked frantically to put me together enough to load me under the ambulance, a part of me thought, I'm not going to make it through this one. I made my peace with life, and what looked like I was, what looked like was going to be the end of it. I was resigned. But that's when I got mad, because I knew I still had stories to tell, stories that I had not told, that no one but me would ever be able to tell, and I was damned if I was going to let someone else take that away from me.
So I held on and faced myself, faced the person I'd lost over the preceding years, remembering all the things that had brought me to this point, all the things I'd done, all the things I wanted to do, to say and to write, and fought my way back. Yeah, I was messed up for a long time thereafter. I went black for an awfully long time. But I started writing again, dug back into my studies, and began the slow process of reassembling my personality. In time, I was able to burn through the anger and find myself whole at the end of it all. Oh, and as for the group, when I left, everyone I'd known there was ordered not to have anything more to do with me, which was par for the course. But I knew that sooner or later, the truth would come out because, well, that's what it does. And in time, that's exactly what happened, and that truth tore apart the organization. All of the communes were shut down, and all but a handful of people left. My phone began to ring with calls from people I hadn't heard from in years, who softly and with great sadness said, You were right. I took no pleasure in being right. On balance, I would have much preferred if the whole thing had never happened. But in truth, if I had stayed on in ignorance or otherwise, there is no question I never would have gone on to do the things that I've done. That would have, there would have never been a Babylon 5, and the book you're holding now would not exist. I always knew that one day I would write about that experience. Some of it, mostly dealing with the long walks, would show up later in a graphic novel entitled Midnight Nation. But the most important parts were right here in Walkabout. And that is what I told Richard as he sat in my office that long ago evening. It was probably more than he wanted to hear. And Lord knows it's probably more than you wanted to read. But A, unlike Richard, you had the option of flipping past all this and you didn't. <laughs> so you have no one to blame but yourself. And B, it is, after all, in the service of again answering that age-old question, where do you get your ideas? Hmm. Uh, that's a compelling story. That is an interesting story. Yeah. What we have with Franklin, I get is his way of... Getting out. Yeah. It just whether it didn't it's, translate well. Yeah, it, it really doesn't, and well, I don't. I don't as well as Midnight Nation. Does. I, I don't know if the um, if the writing is bad for it, or if it's the acting that's bad for it, or a combination of the I two. Think it's a combination. Uh, it just doesn't really work. I now that I understand a little bit more from what you've just read there, Midnight Nation makes a lot more sense to some degree. Yeah. Because I understand that as part of his story. Yeah. It's part of his life that he's opening up there. Right. Um, and uh, I, I think I can appreciate Midnight Nation a little bit more uh, for, for what I think it was trying to, to be. Yeah. So here's the thing. I, for me, and this is why I like Dr. Franklin, and this is why I'm okay with this episode. I realize it's not great, but I'm okay with this episode because... I have done that. I've I've been at that point in my own life where I was so lost. I knew I had no idea which way to go. I didn't know who I was or what I wanted to be or what I wanted to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And this episode came out right around that point in my life. And so it was very easy for me to see the story that Straczynski was trying to tell. Although I would admit that he failed ultimately to really reveal what was going on. I knew what he was trying to say because I was living it right that second. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was what was it was my life, my living daily breath. It was to go through that same kind of torture as what Franklin is, ex- is experiencing here. And it's also why later on, when Midnight Nation came along, I read it and I automatically knew what he was trying to do there and was able to really get into it, maybe a little bit easier than you were. Did Did you know that story about this and before? No, I I, I knew that there was something. 
around a commune, that, a religious commune that he'd been living in. I'd heard that here, snippets of that here and there over the years, but I didn't know about the the walking part until mm. I read this volume. Mm. And, and, the, and the details of what happened in the commune. That's the only time he's ever talked about that that I know of. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I, I wanted just to, just to talk about, rather than spend a whole bunch of time talking about what I admit is not a great episode. What are you talking about? A jazz bar <laughs> on Babylon 5? I think that's great. I just I didn't understand why they didn't automatically go into soft porn. <laughs> By the way, uh, Straczynski wrote those songs. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I don't know if that means anything to anyone. I didn't consider them exceptionally great, but... Congratulations yeah. to him for having some ability to write music. Yeah. That's got to be... I mean, it's its own form of language. My question for you, Pete, is have you ever done anything similar to going on a walkabout? Have you ever just walked away from it all, even for a little bit of time, and just gone out and said, you know what, I'm just going to disconnect for a little bit? Yeah, when I was a missionary, uh, I I just decided for a month I was just not going to be with my companion <laughs> at all. No, <laughs> sorry to explain that. As missionaries, you're constantly with your companion. You're required so, to be yeah, with your companion. If I were to just stop <laughs> being around my companion, that would be really bad. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's a Mormon joke. Um, no, not really. I've never had life... I've never had a tough life. I I don't think I have ever truly had to struggle with things. Yes, the portions of my life were hard and difficult, but not to the degree that, you know, what we're supposed to see with Franklin or what we hear from the story of, of that or yeah. what I know of your personal life. There just wasn't the ugliness that you had to face in my life. It just really wasn't there. Okay. I, I actually, I think that this is a healthy thing to do for yourself every once in a while. I, I, I'll admit, I haven't done this since I've been married. But before I got married, I would take a month out of every year and before I, before I had a steady job, when I had jobs mm -hmm. that I could just walk away from for a month, you know, <laughs> um, I, I would. I'd just take a month off and I'd just, you know, I went and I lived in Las Vegas and I got an apartment for one month and lived in Las Vegas for a month, you know, I... I would just go get away from everything, just be by myself, disconnect from everyone I knew, just to really give myself an opportunity to figure out, am I doing the right things? Am I being who I want to be? Am I making myself the kind of person I want to be? And are the things that I'm spending my time on the kind of things that I will get to the end of my life and think, boy, I'm sure glad I did that. Um, and I think that's hard to do when you're caught up in the just living life day to day. I, I think that's what college was for me. Okay. I think to a certain degree that's kind of what it was like for me serving as a missionary. It was, okay, I'm in Scotland now. What the hell am I doing here? The, 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 the reason I can't really connect with you on that, just to say, for, for me the, the mission was so much about... I knew what I was supposed to be doing there with my time. Mm -hmm. Whereas part of the concept of a walkabout is stopping and evaluating what do I want to do. And, and mm -hmm. I don't know that you can do that when you have something you're supposed to be doing. So you have to be able oh, to do I this. think I absolutely think that you can still be asking those questions. There's a lot of pressure that are put on uh, 
you know, Mormon boys of, you know, that reach the 18, 19 year old age, which is, okay, now you should go and become a missionary. You should become an elder. Uh, there's a lot of pressure put on you. And there, I think, are a lot of people who are out there who mm, really don't, really shouldn't be out there because they don't truly they're, either they're believe in it yeah. or, you know, they're just doing it to please somebody else and it's not internal for them at all. They're fulfilling a cultural demand. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, college certainly was. Okay. Uh, it, it definitely... I can, I can believe that in college that you had that time to... Yeah, whether it was through the, the junior college, even though I was living at home, there was a lot of, okay, I'm I'm off on my own in this... You know, it's not high school anymore. It's not structured. It's I go to the classes that I want to or that I signed up for because I have this goal of getting this degree. Okay, is this really the degree I want? Like I, there was a lot of planning, a lot of sure. for, a lot of thought that went into that, and especially when I moved on for the higher education to you know a college in a town I've never even lived in before. I'm completely on my own. W- what is this like? So to a small degree, I think I kind of had it okay. through college. Uh, and the reason I, I just mentioned it is because since we've been married. Um, my wife has taken some opportunities to go do this just a couple days and I you know she leaves me with the kids and she gets a hotel room somewhere and she goes and she doesn't take her cell phone she does she doesn't email she just goes and, and takes some time for herself and I think that's an incredibly healthy thing I think that that you know there are there are people for whom that will bring a lot of benefit I'm at the point now where I have I've decided who I am, and I drive that very hard. Good. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I don't think that it's necessarily healthy for you to just continually be thinking, oh, where am I? What, uh, is this really what I'm going to be doing? I would hope at some point you've, you're You get gonna, the answer. Yeah, right? you're going <laughs> to get there. I but, would hope. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. But, you know, for me, it was, it was the, the personality type that I have, I was able to take that time before I got married and thankfully I did it before I got married because it would be a horribly <laughs> stressful thing to do to your wife. Boy, think how screwed up you would be without it. <laughs> and, you know, I decided what I was going to be and now I can just drive that every day and every interaction I have with people trying to portray the same message, this person who I decided to be. Until you go out in a dazzling ball of flame. <laughs> and, and for my wife, it's more of a... A, a constant process. She forgets who she decided to be, and has to go renew that. And, and so for her, it's you know, it's I'm 100 percent comfortable with her saying, mm-hmm. you know what, it's time for me to go remember who I decided to be. I need some time away. I say, okay, great, go do it. I got the kids. I'll take a couple of days off work. Not a problem. I'm, I'm sure it's more traumatic for the kids than it is for me. Because <laughs> I think dad's cooking for a few days. <laughs> Have you ever made them a, a hot dog omelet? <laughs> no. <laughs> a couple of times when Dad was in charge, my brother and I got hot dog omelets. Nice. And the idea of a hot dog omelet is so much more appealing than an actual hot That's dog omelet. That's a terrifying thing to say because the idea of a hot dog omelet <laughs> is not appealing. <laughs> well, to, to young boys, you oh, know, okay. eight, nine, ten-year-olds. Yeah, that's that's cool. <laughs> 
Oh, what a terrible thing to serve your children. No, I they get a lot of cold cereal. I think, I think there was onions in the omelet as well. Nice. It's just weird flavor. <laughs> we had plenty of ketchup. I'll, I'll say that. Um, okay, so New Kosh uh, is into um, S&M a little bit. <laughs> because he chokes Lita out of nowhere. I didn't, I didn't understand... Like, it seemed he was pretty pissed off at her, but I didn't understand why, so I just assumed, oh, this just must be the way he, you know, hits on Earth Girls. Lita was taken by the Vorlon and changed so that she could easily carry a piece of Kosh around with her. Right. The, she was to be a receptacle. Yes. And she went off and did something, we don't know what, without taking a piece of Kosh with her. Olkesh is angry with her because... He, in his words, you failed in your mission to preserve a piece of Kosh. You were not here, and you didn't have a piece of him with you. you you're a failure. And Olkesh is a very angry and militant guy. Vorlon. Um. So, <laughs> thanks for pointing out he's Vorlon. Um, so he is... Okay, I guess that kind of makes a little bit more sense. But I kind of would blame Kosh as well. Yes. Where whenever Lita is going to leave him, he really should be It would be, be giving... up to Kosh, right? Yeah. Yeah, you'd think. But she can't exactly just reach in the encounter suit and saying, Okay, I'll see you later, Kosh. I'm going to take a bit of you with me. I, I, I think there may be something to be said for the fact that this is how Olkesh is grieving for Kosh. And he's angry. You know, hmm. He's going through the stages of grief. And he's currently in the middle of anger. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you were going to say one of the Vorlon stages of grief is... Choking, choking, choking white women. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so Lita, she's going to help out uh, Sheridan. Um, the White Star goes off to fly, uh, fight the Shadow Vessel, and they ask for help, and nobody really comes along except for the Nin, Ninbari. Yeah. Um, and so... They're going to go fight it, and it, it's, like, really, really tough. And it nearly just slaps her around until she grabs a hold of Sheridan's hand. Actually, he gives her his hand. All right, okay. And then she suddenly has this renewed strength. Well, she gets angry. Because I think she senses... She got to see through Sheridan's mind's eye the death of Kosh. Right. So... She then gets up and she is just goes after him, and they are stuck. They're stopped. Yeah. Whatever it is inside there, they're frozen. And then the White Star can start to shoot on the ship, and eventually destroys Destroy. it. Yeah. Um. Okay. So during this time period, Garibaldi goes to Jakar and says. You know, I'm super pissed at you. Yeah. Calls him out his crap. And says, you you wanted to get a part of this, and now you're not actually getting a part of this when we when it's time for you to act. And we stood up for the Jatak, and, and what the heck is it still doing out there? I don't care if he is wrong. We stood up for you guys. It's time for you guys to return the favor and stand mm -hmm. up for us. And because of that... Um, they arrive just in the nick of time. But it's not just them. 
I don't know if you noticed. It's not just Narn ships. Yes, I did. I noticed yeah. all of the other flying things in <laughs> space. And they're able to, with a combined effort, uh, to destroy it. A shadow ship. Yeah. yeah. And the rest flee. Yes. They take off. Um, yeah. Okay. I have, That's all I have. Uh, the only other thing I have is when he orders the White Star to take evasive action. You know, we've seen on Star Trek take evasive action, which means, I guess, fly faster. Yeah, I've never fully <laughs> been able to understand what it means. Well, when you if you watch the White Star here, you will see evasive action. Yeah, it's clearly flying around and obeying it, some... I, I don't know if those are actual spatial laws of being able to fly <laughs> around in space. I don't know. I have no it, idea it what it actually is like. Cool. How it's just ducking It and reminds and... me of a fish. Yeah, that's a good swimming. analogy. Swimming. Yeah. Uh, which, and the way a fish can do that is it, it has something to push against. I wish we knew more about the propulsion of the White Star so that we could understand, okay, are there boosters firing there off are. at you other places? Yeah. I, I, I really didn't, though. Okay. I, I, did, I didn't. Whether they're there or not, I, I'm assuming they have to be there. In order for them to be able to do what they do. But they did it. So, yeah, if, you know, if, great. If you watch real close, the, all around the outside edge of the White Star, there are boosters that can allow it to turn in, in different angles and maneuver itself. Pretty pretty cool. Yeah. Listener comments? Yes. Uh, Aaron says, Oddly, this is the episode that makes me start to like Franklin. Hate the new encounter suit uh, new Kosh uses. Lita goes psycho on a shadow ship, telepath style. I really like the conversation between Jakar and Garibaldi. Yeah. is awesome. Uh, this would get a higher rating, but the actress playing the love interest... Uh, if the actress playing the love interest were better. Sci-Fi 8, TV 7. Uh, Moneybags says... Finally, the Franklin plot is resolved. <laughs> I have to say... It was an interesting way of handling finding yourself. Evil Kosh is introduced. No goatee, though. And we have a weapon that can handle the shadows. And he doesn't give a rating. Okay. Um, uh, listener BS. Three storylines here. The Narn. The Box teaming up with Lita. And Psy... Dr. Feelgood. <laughs> Two of these arcs will meld nicely at the end. I will end up uh, with a stupid... Uh, one will end up with a stupid song. So the first ten minutes are cool. Londo getting intimidated by Garibaldi, introducing the Narn sh warship. Cool. The box is spacewalking, and then a Vorlon ship looks at him eye to eye. Cool. So the ship can recognize Kasha's horcrux... In the box? <laughs> cool. And then Jakar and the Narn dude are eating and he thinks it's Breen. Is this another shout out to Trek? As it is generally surmised that the DS9 Breen under the helmets have wolf slash rat like snouts and furry faces. So maybe the Narn do eat them. As we will later see, they eat Rifa. So anyhow... Swedish meatballs. Haha. -ha. This, uh, this station can provide ground meat and cream and breadcrumbs. 
but not bacon and eggs. Well, eggs are used in Swedish meatballs. <laughs> okay, moving on. A new Vorlon. Egg substitute could also be used in Swedish meatballs. <laughs> or they could just ship them in frozen. That would work too. A new Vorlon. And as the ambassador pulls a switcheroo, the encounter suit transforms from a jukebox into a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so do they ever call this guy Ulkesh? I'm going to call him the Hoover Vorlon. The Hoovorlon. <laughs> Sorry. Because he really does look like a Hoover sweeper we used to have. And then we have Garibaldi finding feel-good on his walkabout. Steven, you don't think there are two of you, do you? No, it's a metaphor, dumbass. Oh no, more foundationism. <laughs> okay, you just leave everything behind and just walk, man. Well, you didn't leave everything behind because you are dressed like you walked off the set of Mad Max. Okay, maybe JMS took the leave everything behind thing from Buddhism because that is what Buddha did when he abandoned his wife and child. Oh, nope, it's taken from Aboriginals. Although JMS was probably referring to the Aussie coming-of-age ritual, he does not ever even bother to include the word Australia in the description. It is a continent. People will not have forgotten about it in the 23rd century. <laughs> Aboriginal refers to any indigenous culture in a given area. So suffice it to say, foundationism tries to get back to the roots and stuff. It does not, however, give any indication that it recognizes and respects the differences between the rituals of Native Americans, ancient Japanese Shinto devotees, the Akan tribe of Ghana, or even the Native Canadians. <laughs> They're all just walkabout or whatever. JMS is treating all indigenous cultures in the same way that Garibaldi treats the Drazi. That's harsh. A little harsh. Okay, I can suspend all this because the walkabout thing has nothing to do with the plot anyway. Except in the way Jakar finds a new voice within himself and the box sets a, uh, sets a kick-ass example for the whole fleet to see and begin to discover its own identity as a monolithic organization that has stepped out of Earth's shadow. But tell me, how does Franklin discover himself? Two and a half minutes. That is the length for that abhorrent song. So Franklin went on his walkabout, which is described as an existential pilgrimage to discover something, but leaving behind everything. Everything except going to bars and getting laid. <laughs> Sci-Fi 5, TV 5. Joey, your science fiction rating. Um, I give it a 6. I think that's maybe a little generous, but you do have telepaths jamming shadow ships, and you have Jakar showing up with a fleet of the members of the non-aligned worlds. Yeah, uh, I completely agree with you on that 6. Uh, for television... I give it a four. Uh, it's not good. It's not good. I, I know what he was trying to go for, but I think ultimately it fails. I agree. It was a four. Oh, nice. The uh, P5 rating is a 7.89. Moving on to our next episode. And The Rock, and the rock Cried Out. 
You said I didn't have to watch Grey 17 is Missing. <laughs> no, I, I told our listeners they don't have to watch Grey 17 is Missing. Alright, Grey 17 is Missing. Garibaldi finds a missing deck on the station. Really? That's your summary? Yep. You picked the dumbest part of it. There's other stuff that was decent in this. That's the only part I see when I watch this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, we've got Naroon back. Yeah, we do. And we have the whole Marcus in the Naroon fight. It is good stuff. That's why I said, the way I phrased it was, you're probably not doing yourself a terrible disservice if you skip this episode. Because, yeah, there's some acceptable stuff in it, but it just doesn't... I consider the, the Naroon storyline enriching, not important. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Okay. Um, okay, so Babylon 5 goes about recruiting telepaths. Okay, before we go into the episode, I want to oh. read from the script. Book. Oh, wow. I'm so sorry here. Okay, let's just start by admitting that parts of this episode constitute some of the dumbest things ever committed to celluloid <laughs> and get it out of the way, all right? I will cop to some of the blame for this. Even itemize some of it shortly. But insofar as the Zarg controversy is concerned, <laughs> if you go through this script, you will note that it makes repeated indications of the fact that it is dark when we introduce the Zarg. A point I also emphasize repeatedly with John, uh, John Iacovelli, the... Or not John Iacovelli, sorry, John Flynn, who has been the director of photography for the whole series to this point, directed this episode. It was his directorial debut. (laughs) Fail. (laughs) Fail. (laughs) Uh, A point I'd also emphasize repeatedly with John during the tone meetings we held leading up to the start of shooting. In fact, if you go to page 39 of the script, I say right there, we never get a good look at the Zarg. (laughs) I even underlined the damn sentence. I did this because I'd finally learned, yes, it took three years for the knowledge to sink in, but I eventually got there, that every time we did a rubber monster story, it ended up looking silly, because you can't create really good rubber monsters on our TV budget. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, wait, can you ever create really good rubber monsters? I don't know. (laughs) I wanted a critter, but I didn't want to see it, partly for the reason just expressed, but also because I thought it would play out more scarily if we only caught glimpses of it slicing out of the darkness. Sometimes less is more. <laughs> when I sat down with the prosthetics and creature design folks at Optic Nerve, I even said that some elements of creature design didn't matter since we would never see it. We discussed this. We agreed upon it. It's in the script. And the lighting in the Zark could not have been brighter if we'd set off a thermonuclear blast in the middle of the stage. And I don't think for a mo- I don't think for a moment I wasn't tempted to do exactly that when the dailies came in. I will happily take the rap for the dummy, for Jeremiah's overblown speeches and the stupidity of using steam to fire bullets. But the Zark is all John's fault. I'm glad he accepted responsibility for that. The great irony in all this is that we used to refer to John as the Prince of Darkness, because as director of photography, he loved to underlight the show, throwing as much as possible into shadows and darkness. Why he went in the opposite direction on the Zarg is between John and whatever god he worships. <laughs> when that thing comes out, it's like, <laughs> I just, uh, I remember thinking, uh, uh, where is it? I wrote down, was that a predator? <laughs> or was that, was, like, it goes a, sh- uh, a But it has, like, Wolverine up. claws. 
<laughs> I thought they were Freddy Krueger claws. Oh, really? yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, man, it was bad. It was. Really bad. Um, anyway, I, I made a note of saying, uh, this looks like a horror movie intro with the guy who's calling up saying, hey, I, I can't find any problem with this here. And then we have the, oh, yeah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you. It's so, so dumb. Um, which, by the way, that has to be the way into the missing Gray 17, right? You'd think that there's an obvious way in and out, right? Right there. Yeah, right there. How did that guy get down here? Oh, clearly there are manholes between decks. <sighs> all right, all right. That, that must be how Garibaldi got out in the end. I guess. Um, anyway, they're recruiting telepaths on Babylon 5. Yep. And, um... We don't have to talk about this guy, do we? Well, the... No, no, certainly (laughs) not that guy. Uh, My thinking was, there seems to be a lot of telepaths coming out of the woodwork. Or were they just kind of reviewing everyone and saying what they had to offer? It almost seemed like they were saying, if you think you might be a telepath... Come on down and we'll let you know. Because <laughs> it really seemed like there were a, there lot, were a lot of people. people. I agree, yeah. Okay. Um, Alright, uh, I wrote down... Slug Thrower? Yeah, he Garibaldi has his grandma's 38 special or whatever. Oh, right, 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 right. And Zach calls it a Slug Thrower. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, so... I'm just going to skip over the other Franklin stuff, too, if that's okay. Yep, I need to make notes on it. Naroon is back, and he wants control of the Rangers. I love what he says. He's talking to Lennon, and he says, A religious zealot propelled by prophecy into a position of military (laughs) and political power? (laughs) Always a bad idea. (laughs) That is... I mean, as much as we love Delenn, and we know she's the good guy... Boy, that really is a very dangerous position. It sure is. How could I get that position, Joey? Well, first you need somebody to give you a prophecy. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, the interesting thing is he may be willing to kill Delenn in order to become Ranger 1. Not necessarily that he wants to be Ranger 1. But it belongs to the warrior caste. I assumed that he was speaking for himself, and he was just saying, "Yep, I, I'm, I want control. I'm going to assume control of this." I, I saw it as him. Interesting. Him. Okay. Um. Uh. Let's see here. Uh. Skipping Garibaldi. Skipping Jeremiah. Well, let's. There was one funny thing in the Garibaldi when he first goes to investigate, and he's talking to the woman. Who's talking, you know, about, yeah, there's only 29 floors. I've been on every uh-huh. single one of them. He tries to make a He's like, why is it always thin air? Why isn't it, you know, heavy set air or, you know, toned but could stand to use a, lose a few pounds air? I, that is dumb. And I love the way the woman puts him in her place by saying, I'm sorry, that's not my department. <laughs> <laughs> like, she's not even going to engage. She's just going <laughs> to give him the ultimate brush off. Yes. Jokes about thin air are not my department. <laughs> good, good to know. Um, okay, so... Uh, shoot, what's his name? Lanier is given a responsibility, don't tell 
Sheridan. Sheridan about this. Otherwise, he will interfere, and I don't want this to happen like that. Yeah. So, instead of telling Sheridan, he tells Marcus, who he's not actually lying to Delenn about having told Sheridan. Right. Because he knows that Marcus has enough pride that Marcus won't go run to Sheridan. Whereas anyone within the command structure of Babylon 5 would have reported it to Sheridan. Which is really, I mean, it was implied by, as, as Lanier indicates, there was an implication that I shouldn't be telling anyone. Yes. And so I'm definitely going to go this route because it probably won't get back to Sheridan this way. But you need to protect her. Nerun is here. And uh, so Marcus is, he's going to track him down, and he invokes Densha, yep. uh, which is to the death, essentially. And so the two of them have a, uh, a fight with um, sticks. Midbari fighting pikes. Is that, well, okay, yep. if that's what they're called. Um, so they fight. It stalls Naroon long enough for her to continue on with the ceremony. Yep. And by the end of it, he's supposedly beaten Marcus. Because yep. he shows up at the end of the ceremony. Right as it's about to you know, reach its culmination, he says, y You are Entelzah. Yep. You are the one that should be... In charge Dying of this, because I just faced a human who would have died for a Minbari where I was willing to kill a Minbari. Which, yeah. I don't think he says that in there. That's that's the essence of it, though, yeah. Right, because he eventually says it later on to Marcus uh, in the hospital. And Ner I really enjoy Naroon as a bad guy. Yeah, I agree. And... It's nice to see a different shade of Naroon here, to the point that I don't automatically dismiss him as a bad guy by the end of this episode. It's nice to see that he now still has a brain to him, and he's not some one-dimensional character who's just angry because... Humans he, killed Minbari. Yeah. Yeah. Which would be incredibly stupid. It's nice to be able to see that, and I think the actor who plays Naroon really... Does a has a, a great set of scenes, you know, as he walks into that uh, that ceremony. There's blood between us now, and, yeah. and as he walks into that that hospital room to talk to Marcus, I, I really think that he I agree. he nails yeah, it. He does, does a good a job. job. I want to read from the script book here. We talked uh, earlier, Pete. I shared earlier about how pranks had really started to become a problem mm -hmm. on the set. This is J. Michael Straczynski. He says, What caused me to put a stop to the practical jokes on set was one that went a bit too far. Unintentionally to some degree, yes, but too far nonetheless. It was a midweek morning when I popped into the office long enough to give a script, to give the script coordinator the previous night's files for the first half of the final draft of Grey 17 is Missing so she could print it up and I could give it, and I could give it a read. Script now in hand, I was about to head out to the editing suites across town when Bill Moomy came up to me at the craft services table. He said he wanted to have a bit of fun with Jason Carter, who's the actor who plays Marcus. You of all people know that anybody on this show can be killed at any time, Bill said. So we want to, have a bit, we want to hint that there's an upcoming story where Marcus is killed. 
You okay with we have, if we have a bit of fun with that? Having gotten only a few hours sleep, I wanted nothing more in the universe than to simply have my first cup of coffee of the day, shove down a donut, and get out of Dodge. So perhaps I wasn't thinking clearly, but when someone says, a bit of fun, I logically assume that it'll go on for a few minutes and that's that. So I said yes and headed it out, headed out to do the editing. It was not until I returned later that day to peel Jason Carter off the ceiling that I discovered what had happened in my absence. Bill had staked out the craft services table until Jason came along looking for nibbles. Geez, I just wanted you to know I'm so sorry, Jason, Bill said. Sorry about what? Jason asked. Wait, you haven't heard? Heard what? Oh man, I'm sorry, I should not have said anything. What are you talking about, Bill? Well, I just thought you'd know. Thought they'd have told you that they're going to kill off your character. Bollocks, said Jason. It's true, Bill said. It happens in the next script. Should be coming out any time now. Jason headed for the set where he found Jerry, Claudia, and Bruce sitting around waiting to go on. Jerry was reading a newspaper, trying not to look interested in the conversation. All of them had been brought in on the gag. Jason recounted what Bill had just told him and asked if any of the others had heard anything similar. They didn't tell you they're going to kill off your character? Claudia asked. The bastards. I don't think I should say anything, Bruce said. I whoa, just... whoa, hold on. She would manage to act well enough that <laughs> that he believed her? Oh, stop it. <laughs> uh, I don't think I should really say anything, Bruce said. I just got here myself. But Joe's always been up front in saying that anybody on this show could get killed at any time. Which left Jerry to deliver the coup de grace. They replaced Sinclair, Takashima, and Kyle, the three leads of the show at the very start. I'm the only human character still around from the pilot. Would they replace you? I don't think they'd hesitate a second if Joe thought it served the story. Instead of putting him out of his grief and explaining that this was just a gag, Bill let it sit there all day long. Jason began trotting from the stage to my office every half hour, hoping I would return so he could confront me about this. I knew none of this because everyone at the stage knew not to bother me during editing. Finally, in desperation, hoping to dispel the rumors... Jason slipped into the script coordinator's office, where the aforementioned first half of Grace 17 was sitting on her computer monitor. By sheer coincidence, this is where that first section ended. Nehruin approaches, the end of his pike pointed between Marcus's eyes, a few inches from his head. Positioned for the death blow, he studies Marcus curiously. Why? Why all of this? Pride? Duty? You've been trained well enough, but you must have known you couldn't win, so why do it? Marcus. For her. Slowly, the pike pulls back, Nehrun tensing, ready to deliver the final death blow. Marcus watches it with the distant contemplation of one who's seen his death. No, there's nothing to do to stop it. Marcus. We live for the one. We die for the one. Isilza Sendi in Valen's name. Point of view shot of the pike. Slight fisheye effect from Marcus's point of view as the pike is now in position to fall. End of script. Needless to say, <laughs> upon reading this, with nothing else appearing afterward, Jason understandably concluded that the rumor was true. He went right uh, up to the flue and stayed there until my return at 6 p.m. when I discovered what had happened. As I stepped onto the stage, Jason was vibrating at a frequency sufficient to make every dog and cat within half a kilometer look at one another and say, Do you hear something? I explained that the rest of the script, which had come the next day, went on to show him surviving the fight then apologized for having sanctioned what I thought was going to be just a five-minute gag, but which had evolved into a day of anguish. The next day, I sent him a goodie basket with a card that read, I will never kill you again. 
Later, Jason would consider this a contract between us. <laughs> uh, and there's more to that story. We can't share it right now. Um, I have never truly found practical jokes that, to that degree... To be funny? To be funny. It's just mean-spirited. <laughs> absolutely. It is absolutely mean. Not even to someone who deserves it or to someone who's done it to you already... You know, turnabout's fair play. No, I, I just do not think that that is... I've been in those before where it it spirals out of control and it takes on a life of its own at some point where you're, you're just along for the ride. Like, yeah. you're not even thinking about the, the ramification of what's going to happen. You're just thinking about how clever you are to have pulled off this prank. Yeah, don't... I, I did it once. It ended badly. <laughs> I feel horrible about it uh, because it kind because of you're still stuck doing this podcast. Kind of, <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it kind of destroyed a bit of a friendship that okay. I thought was really, really quite close, and it's not anymore. I, I don't see that person anymore. Um, it, it so if anyone's listening and ever thinking, oh, this would be fun. No, it's not going to be fun. Don't ever try anything like that with me. It will just piss me off. Okay. Um, okay, I, anything else? Uh, I did like one line that uh, Jeremiah had, which was, everything in the universe dies. It's a serious design flaw. <laughs> or is it? Uh, listen to comments, Pete. Uh, listener BS. Where is Dr. Feelgood this week? He has to hide in the shadows because now he is going through withdrawal. And Stim's withdrawal is like regular withdrawal, but worse. So when the doctor is on Stim's, he is a jerk, and he is still a jerk without them, as he endures his post-walkabout sickness. I wish this storyline would just disappear into chubby air. <laughs> uh, I wonder, BS, if you still feel the same way knowing now the story. Yeah. Uh, about JMS. It'd be, I, yeah, it'd be interesting. I'd be about that too. Still a bad story, but, you know, okay. Um, and then, Garibaldi discovers the missing Gray 17, and we see for the first time the next manifestation of the puppet. <laughs> okay, his comment earlier makes more sense now. They painted him blue, gave him a little hat, and made him really annoying. But it's nice to see the little wooden boy still getting work on Babby 5. <laughs> so Jeremiah's hand intro really brings new meaning to he's got the whole world in his hands. <laughs> I also think Delenn's backstory is interesting as her mother's story involves her actually leaving everything behind for a life of serving the religious caste. Take notes, Dr. Feelgood. The father moment that she continues to recount is very strong writing and a great performance. This also indicates that Mimbari seem to be born into their respective castes. And, as I will point out a lot... The Narn are the only species in the universe who represent pluralistic religious philosophies and who do not engage, encourage their pouchlings to adopt the religion they were born into. And now a real duel. Both are students of Durhan. Yep. And they are using low-tech lightsabers. 
<laughs> this is the best fighting on Babby 5 so far. Uh, although they reused a scene a couple of times. Yeah, they did cut the scene. Um, and then Marcus says, I'm a ranger. We walk in the dark places no other will enter. We stand on the bridge and say, No one may pass. We live for the one. We die for the one. This is one of my favorite Babby 5 badass moments. I also think that it would be cool to see a battle royale between the Zarg, the Rancor from Return of the Jedi, and the Gorn from the original series, Arena. This would be a great fight. Is the Gorn the lizard thing? I think it may be. Okay. And Jeremiah turns out to, uh, turns out have, and Jeremiah turns out have no balls when it comes down to it. Much in the way that many philosophically minded, uh, philosophically inclined people off, uh, ofter taunt their own supposed enlightenment as though it were a medal. I think that's supposed to be often. Probably. But R and N aren't next to each other. <laughs> well, not on your keyboard. Maybe he's using a Dvorak <laughs> keyboard. But when it comes down to it, they have no moxie. So we have a great linear quote of the week. Quote, All we know is that we will die. It is only a matter of how and when and whether or not it is with honor. Close quote. Yeah. I also think that the final moment with Marcus and Narun is awesome. So in conclusion, Garibaldi does suck at his job, but he did get tranked by the puppet. Sci-Fi 10. Rangers hierarchy and uh, Denshar and some transcendental cosmolo uh, cosmological cult and a funny alien monster. TV 9. Breen and wow. Zarg are great quotes. I don't know what in the hell you are thinking with those ratings, sir. <laughs> what in the world? He, we should take away on the Facebook page that he... Uh, wow. We should take away Brainy from his uh, name, <laughs> Brainy Smurf. Because I cannot... I cannot believe that. Um, okay, listen to Moneybags. Gray 17 is missing. What a strange episode. Some cool stuff with Naroon, and a great scene with him and Marcus. But why was it only 22 minutes long? <laughs> Rider Strike? And why is it called Gray 17 is missing? Gray 17 isn't mentioned once! <laughs> oh well. It's sometimes, a good interactive memory virus you have there. Can I borrow it? <laughs> sometimes shows have strange names. For instance, why was the second Highlander movie called Highlander 3, not Highlander 2? Oh. <laughs> Highlander 2 is the best one! Oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I must have eaten something that disagreed with me the day I watched this episode. Because I had a horrible nightmare about Garibaldi having a run-in with a bizarre cult and a guy in a rubber suit. TV6, Sci-Fi6. Now, if my horrible dream had been part of the episode, that would have gotten TVZ, Sci-Fi minus two. <laughs> Phew. Good thing it was just a dream. Ah, that's really funny. That was good. Um, uh, Aaron says this could have been one of the best episodes if it weren't for Garibaldi and Grey 17 I love the scene at the end between Nerun and Marcus Sci-Fi 6 TV 5 
Okay, Pete, science fiction. I give this a four, and I think the majority of that all goes to the Ranger, Neroon, and Marcus stuff. I give it a five. I, th- I think that the attempt with the rubber monster <laughs> is science fiction-y, unfortunately. Uh, yes. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> That's typically what people think of when they yeah. think science fiction. It's a shame, but they do. So I give it a five. Okay, for television, I I can't give this more than a three. Wow. This is a stinker. I like the Naroon scenes, but too much of that stuff relies on who we understand Naroon to be. So it requires okay. some setup. And the Garibaldi Grey 17 stuff is dreadful. Okay. I, I give it a, a, a five. I... Mm. If you just take out just the, the the scenes once he finds Grace Seventeen, even like the stuff up leading up to and the idea of there's an entire floor of Grace Sector that's missing, I found entertaining. How are they the eating? Payoff sucks. How are they eating? He 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 mentioned it. He answered that. He says we've tapped into the recycling system. Uh, uh, whatever. I, you know what I would have loved to have seen here. I would have loved to have seen them take Gray 17 as missing and walk about, cut out the Franklin stuff, cut out the Gray 17 stuff, slap the two of those episode. together. I think that would have been a kick-ass episode. <laughs> that would have been a ton of science fiction that would have really rocked the house. I mean, you think about the the ramp up to the, the fight with the Shadow and you, you come back and she's going to be installed as the new head of Ranger 1 and Naroon shows up. Oh, man. You know, actually, Walkabout that's... was supposed to come originally before War Without End, parts one and two, so that you so that you end the season going War Without End, part one, War Without End, part two, Grey 17 is missing, and The Rock cried out in their hiding place, Shadow Dancing, and Zaha Doom. And, and that is a much stronger end of the season. I think walk, inserting Walkabout in the middle brings that down a little bit. But you're right. Even the Gray 17 is missing stuff. They cut that part out. You know what they should have done? They should have made Gray 17 walkabout. <laughs> he could have been having his walkabout on Gray 17. <laughs> Why not? Then we could have just completely avoided that episode. Walkabout the Gray Seven, the missing Gray 17. <laughs> sure. Uh, what about a P5 rating? Uh, P5 rating is 6.93. Moving on to our next episode, and the Rock cried out. It's not the name of the episode. No hiding place. Londo and Jakar work together to get rid of Lord Rifa. That's not a good summary. Why? Well, because you didn't like the way I said the title. Oh. <laughs> I was predisposed I, to hate anything you were going to say. You, you keep leaving out the best part of the title. That's, that's okay. <laughs> um, this is one of my favorite episodes of Babylon 5. It's good. I definitely enjoy it. Um... I think that they, production-wise, and I, I'm getting ahead of myself, I think that they misordered some of these things. Okay. I think that put it in a different order w- works better. Um, but I do like the overall story that they're telling with this. In both the A and what I hate to call B plot, because they are both seem to be very, very solid. Strong. Yeah. yeah. Um, Londo appears to be going after Jakar. Appears to be setting him up. Yep. Turns out he's actually not. Um, the whole plan was he's going after Lord Rifa because he believes Rifa was the one that killed Adira. Adira. 
So it's part of the power play, part of Londo getting back at Rifa, or what he thinks is you know what happened uh, in that scenario. Um, explain to me what was the point of the Jakar and Ivanova talk at the very beginning? I don't remember now. She, they're talking about... Oh, it's that Jakar wants them to assign a Narn bodyguard to go with every telepath that's sent out out in the galaxy. So they're... They, oh, is that what they were talking all, about? All these telepaths that they found in the previous episode, they're now assigning to any ship that mm-hmm. has agreed to be part of the rotating defense of Babylon 5. Right. Basically, anybody who's part of the war against the Shadow, they're giving them a telepath. And Jakar is saying, right. I would like to send a Narn with every telepath that goes out there to be that telepath's personal bodyguard. Okay, I guess that makes a bit more sense. It, I, I just really didn't follow that entire conversation. I don't know why. But I feel bad for whatever telepath ends up on a Pac Marah uh, <laughs> ship yeah. that can't be comfortable. So did Garibaldi. He's like, oh, I'm sorry about that. And don't drink the water. <laughs> um, okay, we have religious men show up on the station. Yep. And the real point is they're they're bringing a message. They're passing along information. Yeah. Uh, that all of them have been gathering. They're part of the resistance movement there on Earth. Uh, how they got permission to come to Babylon 5, I wasn't really quite clear on because it seems like Clark would be shutting down anything that has people leaving Earth to come to Babylon 5. Well, clearly he hasn't shut everything down yet. Right. And, you know, they are able to make some kind of argument, I'm guessing, based on, you know, it's a religious or a mission of mercy kind of thing. You know, what are we going to do? You know, so reveal state secrets? We're men of God. <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not the first time in history that men of the cloth have been used to pass secret messages around. That's why you trust no one. You must rule with an iron fist. Let none of them out of your sight. <laughs> That was my line. <laughs> <laughs> I've been with you too long. Um, okay, so what's uh, Veer is being told by Jakar, or sorry, Londo. Um, here's what I want you to do. We're going to capture Jakar. Yeah. He's fed this line, and Veer is incredibly uncomfortable with this, but still goes along with it because. Londo, like, threatens him. Yeah, bullies him. Really, really badly. To the point where he says, eh, better my family than, you know, wait, no. Better Jakar than, than my, my family, family. Yeah. Uh, to be hurt in such a manner. So, Rifa is back, and he and um, Londo are kind of jockeying for power a bit amongst the uh, the Prime Minister. Or is that Mr. Verini? He's not the prime minister. He's I don't not. Think. Okay, so he's just a, a guy who's important. But he's a close friend of the emperor's. So Veer is captured uh, by uh, Rifa's men, and he is pumped for information about Londo's plan to the point that they bring in a telepath. Yep. And he rips it from his mind, and I just. The, the Centauri telepath seemed really creepy, which made me realize, okay, pretty much all of the telepaths we've seen are really creepy people. Would Is, you include Lita in that? 
I... Well, she seems to be the anomaly. Or Talia? Yeah, Talia was creepy. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's um, It seems as though, for the most part, he's saying telepaths are creepy-looking people, and Straczynski doesn't like telepaths. No, it, he's trying to set up for things that happen in Season 5. Okay. Um... Uh, the episode starts out, I remember, you know, I'm a teenager and I turn on the TV to watch my weekly episode of Babylon 5 and the very first thing that comes across the screen as the episode is starting just made me giddy when it said Z minus 14 days. Mm. And at that point I just, I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, this is going to be so awesome! (laughs) (laughs) And I still get that way, clearly. You know, just seeing that, and and at the time, you know, I automatically jumped to, he's going to make a trip to Zahadum in 14 days. Yeah, that's what you uh, are led to believe, but that's not actually what's going to happen. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, so, the uh, religious people are basically, the, the message they're trying to give across is, look, you can affect the world and make a change, but you just have to get involved in order to do it. You cannot sit back and think, oh, I can't do anything. Most people are unhappy and upset about what's going on on Earth. Yeah. But they don't feel like they can actually make a difference. So clearly they haven't paid attention to history. <laughs> uh, and so they're just letting things happen. And then the, uh, the, uh, the black guy, what's his name? I can't remember the, now. The black minister. minister yeah. He makes the comment to Sheridan. He says, look, you are, yeah, you, you aren't looking good. Your worry tank is full, is how he puts it. Yeah, I, I've seen people who are in your position who don't, you know, unburden themselves onto other people because they think it's going to be too much. And then it gets to the point where people stop coming to you because they don't want to add one more burden to you. And you then become a bad leader because of it. Because you aren't getting all of the information. Yeah. You aren't dealing with this correctly. You need to find someone to unburden yourself with. You find a companion of some regard. And of course... Steers, her toward, steers him towards Dylan. Yes. And uh, Sheridan does not like that idea. He says, look, she already has enough to deal with without me adding more to it. And uh, he's like, no, you have got to do this. And it finally gets to the point where he does. He, you know, he's been trying to make sense of the shadow attacks. Why are they happening in this way? And so he finally talks to Delenn and, you know, brings her in on what he's been thinking about. And she can't figure it out either. Makes no sense to her. Yeah. And he's like, hey, you know, we need to start thinking like the shadow here. And she bristles at that right away because I think she thinks it means something else but it finally triggers something and he thinks he's figured out what they might be doing here which is laying a trap for all of the other people you know they're think, setting up a corral yes yeah. um, and so they uh, they decide they are going um, she takes him and brings him in the White Star and yeah. shows him 
the, the fleet. entire fleet of white stars. It was never meant to be just one ship. Right. And it's showing him, look, relax. We can help out on this here. We're, I, we're with you. You're not alone. You don't have to carry all of this yourself. Yeah. And this is, I mean, he is so overjoyed that he kisses her. Finally. For the first time. For the second time. So I think they might be a couple now. His 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 second time, her first time. <laughs> um. Okay, then the episode ends with Z minus ten days. Yeah. I skipped over all of the Jakar stuff, so let's cover that now. Um, Rifa plans to attack Jakar. So he's he's there on the Narn homeworld. Uh, we know that Jakar has showed up there. He meets up with Talon, and Talon and um, Jakar have a conversation. He's it's like, "It's not Talon. It's not Talon. Nope. Who was it? Uh, I thought I it was. Forget his name. But the actor playing this Narn is Wayne Alexander, who played Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, comes the Inquisitor." And it, this this is one of my top three favorite episodes of all time, and I think I mentioned before. It's just really weird. Wayne Alexander appears in all three of my top three favorite episodes mm. of Babylon 5. Um, I thought he was Talon. I really did. But I guess they all look the same to me. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so he's sort of saying, you, are you sure? Can you trust him? And we're supposed to believe... That it's Veer that they're talking about. Right. And he's like, yes, in, in this, I, I do. I absolutely trust that this is happening here. Um, and, you know, we're going to go. And so they go in, and Rifa is going to be laying a trap. He's going to be taking in some Centauri guards, and they're going to capture Jakar. Yeah. Before we move into that, I just want to share something from the script book where he says... The look of the Narn homeworld seen in this episode is the sum of a number of different apo- approaches. On the one hand, the buildings are blocky and cumbersome. I had asked for a Soviet style to the architecture, heavy and ponderous. But in other places, we were going for an architecture more evocative of Hiroshima, especially in the shot showing a blasted domed building, which is based almost exactly on one of the few structures remaining after the very first atomic blast. The theory was that the image would subliminally reinforce the consequences of the Centauri bombing the planet using mass drivers. Because we could not afford to build yet another set, we used the Centauri Royal Palace set for the Centauri base on Narn, <laughs> which I covered by having Rifa commend the designer saying it was almost identical to the one on Centauri Prime. Yeah. Well, actually, it was exactly identical, because it's the same set. Yeah. But, as always, my belief is that if you have a disadvantage... Turn it to your advantage by fessing up to it. The important thing to stress, and this is perhaps the single most amazing thing about the history of Babylon 5, is that these compromises were always minor. In five years, we never left the building on Tamarack Drive, never journeyed any further than our own parking lot. Yet within those three stages, which you could walk through end-to-end in about five minutes, John Iacovelli and the art department were able to bring to life not just Babylon 5, but Earth, Mars, Narn, Centauri Prime, Minbar, Zahadum, an assortment of other worlds, plus 
various Earth ships, fleet ships, fighters, alien craft, and a whole variety of disparate locations. You could stand at one end of stage B and stay, stand at one end of stages B and C and hit the other end of it with a of the of the stage with a rock. On stage A, it may have taken you two or three throws to get there, but that's it. This was the world we lived in for five years, and it encompassed whole planets. As self-congratulatory as that may sound, I just find it amazing. Hmm. So, um, they so capture tunnels. Jakar. Yeah. And Rifa's over him, and uh, he's going to steal the thunder of what he thinks is Londo's prize here. Yeah. And what turns out is going to get turned back on him. And Jakar plays a recording of Londo saying, <laughs> hey, I just got you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, these guys, these um, these Centauri guards here, they're, work they're working for me. And all of these uh, Narn people here, they are... I've told them that you were the instrument of their planet getting bombed. Bombed. Yeah. And he says, if you don't believe me, or if they don't believe me, then I, I can't remember what he says at that point. I, he had some on other the off backup. chance that they oh, don't yeah, yeah, believe yeah. me, I've arranged for 2,000 Narn to be freed. Half in advance, half after your death. Yeah. So he's ensuring that this is going to happen. Yeah. Um, and we have what in my opinion is one of the better scenes of Babylon 5 as far as that production goes with the song starting up and the sheer panic yeah I would have liked to have seen more panic <laughs> in him okay to, to as he realizes oh my gosh I am going to die in the next five minutes I would have enjoyed seeing more of that out of him and you see him sprinting down the hallway, and more Narn show up. And, and I love the way the lyrics that were selected blend with what's going on. Yes. There's no hiding place. Yes. Absolutely. So, so powerful. I want to read a little bit here about uh, J. Michael Straczynski about William Forward, who plays Lord Rifa. He says... Uh, when it came down to the set on the first day of shooting for this episode, Peter pulled me aside and said, Bill's very unhappy, referring to William Forward. I asked why. He thinks you don't like the work he did on the show, and that's why you're killing off his character. Which could not possibly have been further from the truth. The reason that I had Rifa reappear so often throughout the series was the same reason I was now killing him off. Because he was being rendered so beautifully by William Forward. Lots of people who watched the show wanted nothing more than to see Rifa get nailed to the wall. Yeah. And after a certain point, you have to give folks what they want. And to be honest, what I wanted as well. Because it's just so darn satisfying. The reason for that satisfaction lay, absolutely, in the strength of the performance. So after waiting for the next shot to be finished, I pulled Bill aside and began my conversation with him, something along the lines of, you're just nuts, you know that? I told him everything that appears in the paragraph immediately preceding this one, and by the end he seemed pleased and flattered, as he should have been. That's the funny thing about television. Sometimes you kill a character because he's not working. <laughs> 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 Names unmentioned. 
Uh, and sometimes you kill a character precisely because he is working. Because you know it'll have an impact on the audience. So it's always important to let the actor know it's his witch. <laughs> yeah. Um, here's where I think that they screwed up. The, the singing of the song in time with the beating and uh-huh. death of Rifa should have been the end of this episode. Okay. Uh, I think the Z minus, you know, Ten. X number of days, whatever, I say you start that in episode 21. I think the West Wing has proven that you can do, you can cover that and get that point across within two episodes. I, I, I personally saw it in West Wing and I thought it was done well enough. That ending there is so incredibly powerful. The the panic of this guy's life has finally led up to his demise. And that song was chosen perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely perfectly. Uh, I think would have made for a much, much stronger episode. Okay. Uh, and I, I would have enjoyed it in a, in a better way to have it differently positioned. Okay. Listener comments? Yes. Uh, Aaron says... Along with Comes the Inquisitor, this is one of my favorite episodes of not just Babylon 5, but television. Uh, Sci-Fi 6, TV 9.5. Moneybags says, Great revenge episode. It's soured a bit by the fact that Rifa didn't actually kill Adira, but oh well. But I was tipped off to the twist ending when Veer was captured and telepathically scanned. uh, Television uh, 7, Sci-Fi 5. Until next time. Indeed, until next time, moneybags. Brainy Smurf. The black preacher dude is cool at first, but he gets annoying after a (laughs) while. Monks and sunflowers. Rifa is eaten by some Narn. (laughs) Because <laughs> they're all huddled around his body at the end. <laughs> Sci-Fi 8, TV 7. Uh, valedictions and Valiant Vindications. Brainy Smurf. A little bit of uh, V for Vendetta there. <laughs> um, okay. Joey, Sci-Fi. Well, I feel really bad about this. I don't, I'm, I'm giving it a 7. Here's the thing. I love this episode, but I can't put my finger on it other than to say if you watch the entire show and you know Londo and you know Jakar, you know who they are as characters, when this episode plays out, the fact that they were willing to work together to destroy Lord Rifa, and I, I think you have to put this... I know you mentioned earlier you think that you could not have done it in a different order... This has to come after War Without End Part 2. Because in War Without End Part 2, when Londo was ready for Jakar to try to kill him... No, I, I don't mean this episode should have come before another. I'm talking about the way that the episode ended. You said at the beginning that you thought... I was, was talking about oh, this okay. part, right, the, okay. the way that it ended. It's okay. in the wrong position, the gotcha. ending. The, anyway, what I was trying to get to was... Londo calls Jakar forward by saying, are you there, old friend? I don't know if, pe- if yep. other people caught that. 
it's clear that at that point in the story of Babylon 5, Londo and Jakar aren't what you could even remotely call friends. But this is their first step towards getting where they will end up in War Without End Part 2. This is the beginning of their ability to work together and to have a mutual degree of respect, even though they can't stand each other still right now. This is the first step of both of them moving past all the things that have been sticking in their way all this time. But it's not that much science fiction. It's it's just really, really powerful writing. Um, so I, I'm going to give it an 8. I, I wish I could give it more, but I, I just don't think I can. You said 7. I meant 8. Okay. Or, well, originally, when you started off, you said yeah, 7. It was supposed to be an 8. Um, and I was uh, going to agree with you then. <laughs> 7 is the appropriate number for this because it is very solid, but it doesn't have enough of the science fiction thematic elements that would help to take it above. I, I did like... I, I'm giving it some amount of credit for both the White Star Fleet mm-hmm. and the Narn Homeworld. Mm-hmm. Um, for television, again, as much as I love this, understanding the episode and really appreciating the episode is tied into knowing who Jakar is and knowing who Londo is and knowing who Risa is and really hating him as you know only a, a truly great villain can be hated. Uh, I'm going to have to give it a 7. I, I, and, and a big part of that 7 is the juxtaposition, which I think anybody could appreciate, but it, it just it's so much more powerful than the numbers here can indicate. Yeah, it's a it's a very very solid ending and a very well written episode. Uh, I give it a seven as well. What as I was watching this and thinking, okay, the way that they filmed it and the way that it's shown, it's perfect. It's just right. The way that it mixes with that music, perfect. But if I was really one of those Narn, I don't think that I would have just gone with just beating him because it seems like that death is going to come pretty quick. I'm reminded of the movie, dare I admit that I've watched this, Pulp Fiction. <laughs> a movie that I don't consider to be worthwhile in any regard and uh, will not uh, enrich your life to any degree. But a well-written story nonetheless. Well acted by what I consider to be very, very good actors. In that, they have this scene where Marcellus Wallace has been let's say violated (laughs) and they finally beaten their people and they've now they've got the guy who was you know violating them and they're in control now and he says what what's next i'm gonna call up some brothers we're gonna go to town with some pliers and a blowtorch with a few expletives thrown in basically indicating they're going to make his life very, very miserable over the next few, you know, whatever time he has. I think if you find the instrument of your... Bombing your world? Yes! (laughs) I say you let that go on for a while. (laughs) That's interesting. I I think that's where I would end up going. You're a very vengeful guy. <laughs> I admit that it's not doesn't you know it's not one of my shining beacon moments. <laughs> but I just think that you know if you're really interested in causing the pain and anguish and suffering of someone, eh, the Pulp 
fiction route might be a little better way. Yeah, I... Uh... In the end, revenge will never ever bring you true happiness or peace. There, I've redeemed myself. <laughs> I don't think that that's... All right, all right fine. Uh, let's see here. The enemy is fear and ignorance. <laughs> no? Any better? Uh, P5 rating? Uh, 8.71. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode of The Homestarmy Presents Trek West 5. We hope that you've learned something, had some laughs, and we always invite your comments to our email at trekwest5 at thehomestarmy.com. Or you can tweet us at hashtag TrekWest5, or call and leave us a voicemail at 801-788-4913. So, until next time, I am Joey. And I am Peter. And thanks for listening.